Hello and welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your co-host, Mike. And together we make a host. Yes. I guess. <laughs> One host. <laughs> and we're here on episode 129, bringing you the best of new releases in classical music and jazz. Last week's episode was a lot of fun. We yeah. featured the new recording of... Les McCann's tunes by Joel Alterman. And he right. checked out the episode and uh, he said he really enjoyed listening to us. So He wrote a really nice uh, message to us. I yeah. caught that one. Yeah. And we're going to see if we can get him on for an interview. That would be really cool. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. No pressure, Joe. You don't have to do the interview. We're just, <laughs> this is just what we do. We're trying to, you know, get to know people. Because he also has another recording out of solo piano with a mm -hmm. lot of interesting uh, pop tune selections on there. And uh, we, I couldn't do both of them on the podcast. So it would be interesting to talk to him about that as well. Now, they both came out on the same day, right? I believe they did. Yeah. Yeah. That makes it did. hard kind of, but you, we could do both of them. I don't yeah, know. That'd be interesting. They're both on different labels too. Oh, it's yeah. complicated. <laughs> uh, one's on a CD, one isn't. At yeah, least one's not yet. His <laughs> own self-release. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, well, also... You know, so much music came out this oh. week. I'm going to have material for a lot of episodes. Yeah, me too. Classical music too. A lot of new material came out. And next week's going to be a big week too. I already had a look ahead. Yeah, after a little bit of a drought mid-summer, there's all this great stuff that came out. And so here's my little media rant for <laughs> this oh, man. week. So I was looking at some of the new CDs came out. One I was interested in was on Blue Note. And I said, oh. okay, that's cool. So let me check this out. And of course, you know, we can listen to all this music on streaming now, which is great. Right. It comes out right away, can listen to it. Now, that's mm -hmm. enough for most people. But, you know, we want to have at least CD quality, which we get on Deezer, not on Spotify in Japan. And, uh, you know, you have your other choices, Apple Music, Amazon here anyway. But we like to collect music, too. So I thought, well, let me take a look and see what if I'd want this on CD, right? Just for mm -hmm. my collection. Well, Amazon Japan doesn't have it in stock yet you know so we're gonna have to wait so i went and looked on you know us amazon and i saw this new blue note cd the cd price 13.98 yeah, that's reasonable it's not bad it's yeah. pretty good right you can also get the digital download of cd quality mm -hmm. 9.99 mm -hmm. that's pretty cheap too right yeah no manufacturing there i get that okay here's where things get sketchy right hmm. you can only buy the download if you're in the U.S. Oh. Okay. You can't do that. In, there's no download in Japan? Well, from Amazon not from Japan? Blue Note, there's no. All right. Oh, now, man. if you want the high-res download, that's mm -hmm. 96 kilohertz, 24-bit, the price goes up to 17.98. That's ridiculous because that's more than the CD, and you get that on the CD, you would think, anyway. Well, you don't. You, you don't, You, huh? you only okay. get the CD bit, right, you know, which is right. half that. But here's the thing. If it was recorded at that high-res rate, mm -hmm. they actually have to downsample it to sell mm -hmm. you the CD or the CD quality download. It's an extra process. Right. So why do they charge you more for the original? <laughs> that's scam number one. It's not only Blue Note, but this yeah, is just an example. Yeah, it sounds better, but that's right? ridiculous, yeah. So here's the high-res. If we convert that to the current rate conversion, that's 2,600 yen for the high-res download. But as I said, you can't buy it from Blue Note if you're not in the U.S. So mm -hmm. I wanted to see where could I get this if I was in Japan. And there's one place you could get it, and mm -hmm. that's through eOnkyo, all right? Okay. You know, Onkyo 
audio right. electronics doesn't exist anymore, but they still have, you know, this music distribution service, which much... I see this triple yen sign, like, coming up already. <laughs> they must have some exclusive deal with distribution of these digital releases, right? Right. And so they offer it as a high-res. You can buy it. It's only 48 kilohertz, so it's not the same full high-res. 3,871 yen. Yeah, that's typical. It was a 50% more than the U.S. download price converted to yen. Yeah, and you, not only that, they're not even shipping it. You know, So yeah. the CD, they'll charge about that much for a CD here because yeah. it's kind of the U.S. price plus the, you know, converted to the very weak yen plus right. shipping, which is pretty much why I don't buy CDs this year. I'm not buying CDs <laughs> this year. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I actually still am, but I'm buying a lot less. Let's Change your that. marketing record companies. We're among the few, you know, loyal music fans who still spend money on music. Yeah. And we're getting, you know, price gouged <laughs> for yeah, these kind hey, of things. Are you going to complain that everybody's listening for free on uh, yeah. streaming? What's well, your fault? You know, it's always their fault. You know, I don't know. Anyway, hmm. that's the end. Anyway, <laughs> there the you rant. go. We could go. We could do a whole. Yeah, sure. We could do a whole podcast about this. We, <laughs> we could, could do that. You could just do another one every week yeah. and complain about something the, uh, new to complain about music industry. <laughs> anyway, we got a lot to be happy about because we got a lot of really interesting music to uh, introduce you to this week. We do, yeah. If you haven't checked out the playlist yet, as always in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to talk about. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You get all the music in one place at CD Quality on Deezer. They also have podcasts there. You can get everything in one place if you want. Now, if you don't see the full description or their recording links aren't active wherever you listen to us, you can always come over to our host site, which is podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's clear and easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow us or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend. If you have any music-loving friends, we can always get new listeners that way. Take a moment, give us a ranking or write a short review. That helps us get listed in the recommendations. We get more new listeners that way. Also, come over and check us out on Facebook. We've got a page there. You can get extra info and more new releases throughout the week. There's a lot of new jazz ones I put up there this week. See our interaction with the artists and any feedback that we get. And if you want to contact us directly, otherwise, you can also get in touch by email. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And speaking of podcasts, we also want to recommend our friends over at the same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. That's Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra. They look at several versions of just one jazz standard for each episode. They talk about the history, they play little samples, and then they talk about what they like and don't like. And... And we're going to bond with them, as yeah. it turns out. If all goes well and everything lines <laughs> or more, up. maybe we won't. <laughs> <laughs> in our next episode following this one, one week later, we're going to have a little standards summit with them. Yeah. And uh, we're going to talk over some, well, one classical recording and two jazz recordings of mostly standards material. And uh, yeah, bounce ideas off from each other and see what they think. So there'll also be a playlist up for that if you want to check that music out before the episode that'll come up. Not too long after this episode is published. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, coming up uh, next week. Anyway, let's uh, 
Let's go into this week, shall yeah. we? Our first recording I picked um, in classical, uh, Mozart, because it's always good to hear Mozart, isn't it? Sure. He's like, he's my favorite composer, basically. Oh. Okay, because it's just so, when I hear Mozart, I suddenly want to hear all the rest of Mozart, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> it's just so uplifting in a lot of ways. Even the darker works kind of, you know, still put me in a good place somehow. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, these are the uh, piano quartets, and uh, this is very interesting. Uh, there are two piano quartets. One of them is a darker work, the first one, and the second one's a sunnier work. So you get mm. kind of both ends of uh, Mozart's um, sort of creativity here. And not only that, both of these works, they're very big works too, which is probably why you don't hear them all too often. I'm not all that familiar with them. Actually, I am because I have a previous recording of this that I really like by... Um, it's on Hyperion. It's by Paul Lewis and the uh, uh, the Leopold uh, String Trio. Okay. Hmm. So uh, you got an ensemble and you got Paul Lewis. And uh, I'm going to be comparing that one a lot to this one. That's the only other one I know, really, because I don't know. But this one uh, is a new one, and I thought, oh, i got to hear more recordings of this, uh, by Francesca Dego on the violin, Timothy Ridout on the viola. I hope I'm saying his name right. Laur van der Heijden on cello is that laura or lauer i didn't okay i'm gonna drop the a and federico coli on the piano now i this is on the chandos label now i was attracted to this because of francesca dego who's um the violin playing i have on some other recordings including some mozart and i really like it she's got this big nice kind of burnished tone and uh, i thought this would be really enjoyable Anyway, first of all, piano quartets. What's a piano quartet? It's a piano trio, so piano, cello, violin, with a viola. Hmm. Okay, so there's it's not a string quartet because there's one violin missing. So it's kind of an odd combination of instruments, really. Hmm. Um, you don't More have the warmer uh, sounding though than a trio. Yeah. Yeah, because you, yeah, well, because you have that extra string instrument, but then you can get uh, piano quintets, which is a string quartet and a piano, right. and that would be more. Yes, yeah, so this is kind of odd because there's a violin missing. So it kind of makes the viola kind of on a similar level to the violin, which is kind of nice because the viola has a really interesting kind of darker sound. Anyway, let's get into this. Uh, the piano quartet number one in G minor, K478. Uh, G minor, the notes in the booklet say, is an unusual key for Mozart. He, didn't, he apparently didn't write too many works in this key, but... Uh, there's some very, very famous ones in this key, uh, including most notably, I think, uh, Symphony 40, the one mm. that goes da 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 pretty dark anyway so now i now i'm thinking of that symphony because i just hummed it I'm, <laughs> is this is this the one i'm thinking of i'm trying to scroll through my mozart rolodex in my yeah. brain to remember which one i'm thinking of oh by the way if anyone saw the movie um amadeus when um the first time you see salieri at the beginning when he's dying in his like uh, old folks home because he's like slashed his wrists or whatever he did you're hearing the uh G minor symphony number 25 by Mozart when, okay. when he does that, which is a more youthful work, but also very disturbing. All right, anyway, we have a piano quartet here in G minor, the first one. Let's talk about this. First movement, Allegro, is very long, 15 minutes, and we I think we get a repeat of the um, exposition here. Now, first movements are sonata forms, so there's a lot that has to happen in a sonata. You have to hear the theme twice in a stereotypical sonata anyway there are different kinds and then there's like a 
development section where those themes are kind of like played in different keys and mixed up and by the end you hear the same themes again except that one of them has gone to the uh the key g minor that's the uh signature key of the work so it's sort of like a theater piece for um instruments it's an instrumental theater piece it was it originated in opera so think about the themes as opera characters anyway the allegro starts softly and uh it's beautifully shaped and there's of course the g minor sinister edge into this opening and that sinister edge really isn't brought out much i really would have uh <laughs> if if I actually played music, <laughs> would have brought it out more. I'm always kind of like coaching, like when I do a lot of these things. Sometimes in my head, okay. Instead of foreboding, which is kind of what you want from this, they they have this kind of like a hesitant kind of feeling to it. Like I'm afraid to go into the next room. What's going to be behind that corner? Kind of feeling, you know. It's elegant and beautiful, which is not a bad thing. But there's more to this theme than that. Okay, so the fleeting violin theme just after the second minute is beautifully played, and I love Francesca Dago's playing, so she's um, on form here. And it registers as a genuine surprise here because it just kind of pops out of the um, texture. This repeats in the piano afterwards, that theme, and at 3.08 we get a full repeat of the opening, and it has a bit more of a sinister overtone the second time we hear it, with a hush in the strings leading up to 3.30. I still get the feeling that the drama of this movement is being played down. I should mention that the recording is admirably transparent and the listener can zero in on any instrument he or she wants. We're in the development section at 6 minutes 15 seconds. The piano's harmonic wanderings have a lost in the woods type of feeling that's appropriate for this movement. Once the strings come in, they're more elegant than agitated. Like a kind of, they're kind of like a lady whose biggest fear is ripping her ball gown on a branch or something. You know, I think I think there's more at stake than that in this music. Anyway, at 7:37, there's an entertaining false recapitulation that starts unexpectedly going its own way. In the ninth minute, we hear that surprise violin theme from the second minute and get some uh, development treatment here. It doesn't hang around long to hear either. It's great composing, of course, uh, because we want to keep hearing it. So Mozart is really great at that. You hear this theme and that goes away and you still want to be hearing it. At 10.14, we shift into another key unexpectedly, stay there for some stable harmonic moments. Harmony starts moving again. At 11.33, we finally get the opening theme again after a long, harrowing walk through the 18th century harmonic woods. And all feels a lot less sinister now and even bubbly at times. Uh, The ensemble does this emotion well. There are darker harmonic turns at times, but they now seem like memories. The violin theme is heard one last time at 13 minutes with some intriguing accompaniment and other strings. The orchestration is subtly different, and we hear the opening theme stated one last time in a coda. Uh, The movement ends emphatically enough and in beautiful sound and tone. Now, I heard uh, both of these pieces on different days, and I noticed something. Uh, Both quartets have a very long first movement, and the development section is very long. Now, the theme, the opening theme, is restated about halfway through the development. It sounds like the piece is going to end soon, right? We're going to mm-hmm. hear the uh, the repeat of the themes, and then the piece will end. But in both pieces, Mozart does this as sort of like a trick. It's something Haydn did a lot, where you'd kind of restate the theme, and then it would go off in some weird harmonic direction, and you have fooled the audience who uh, are expecting to hear all the themes again and then suddenly the rug is pulled out from under them and they're lost in the woods again we thought we were home but we're not okay so mm. we get that in this uh movement and i really like that 
Okay, the second movement, Andante. These are three movement works, by the way. The piano starts its solo opening at a slow tempo. Sound quality is excellent with uh, dimension to the piano sound. There's an excellent false cadence at 42 seconds. The piano playing and tone is sensitive throughout, and that's where my ear goes towards the uh, sensitivity. The strings all sound fine, too. It's just uh, that the piano is given so much space by Mozart here. And in the second minute, uh, new keys are explored via the material. Now, the piano having so much space means he's carrying the material, and everybody else is going to have to kind of come in the way he you know, plays it. And he's playing this very, I use the word sensitively, but it, I think it's a little too sensitively, really. <laughs> so everybody's got to come in really kind of carefully. Anyway, the tempo chosen here and the overall approach makes the playing sound tentative, like it's edging toward the side of a cliff to have a look, but it doesn't want to fall off. So it's not, it, I don't feel like these musicians are taking risks, is what I'm saying here. Uh, the opening melody, you don't have to take much of a risk in this, but I think you want to make it sound a little risky, you know? The opening mm -hmm. melody repeats the strings at 515 with the piano answering, so the roles are reversed. Nice composing there. Peaceful, quiet, and sensitively played ending. Okay, the third movement is a rondo, and that's generally what we're going to get from Mozart in the last movements. Um, it's one of Mozart's appealing rondo themes. It's cheerful, but comes across as heavier here than in the um, the other recording I mentioned, um, the uh, Paul Lewis and the, uh, the Leopold String Trio recording. Uh, the interpretation here is pleasant and thoughtful, though, and everything is sensitively played. Uh, the dr dramatic departure from the theme in the fourth minute doesn't come across as particularly startling as it should, I think. Again, these are my opinions. I just want to say, um, I can imagine people, you know, saying, "Yeah, I don't, I don't think so." <laughs> well, you know, contrast your ideas to mine. That's great. Okay, I, I do that all the time. Excellently executed false cadence at seven twelve. That really had me believing we were headed to the end. And then I they did that, that too. Yeah. yeah, they did that really well. It was a big surprise. But we get that in the next run-up to the cadence shortly afterwards. It sounds appropriately energetic. So I thought this was um, good, this performance. Mm. Now, I have to say, though, I did prefer my older Paul Lewis and uh, Leopold String Trio recording for reasons I'll get into after I talk about the next quartet. Okay, piano quartet number two in E-flat major. We're in a major key here. This is K493. And this one contrasts with the first quartet and being much sunnier and it sort of balances the program. These two works go together exceptionally well in, in the same program. I think they're both written in the same year, too, but I, I should have checked that. Anyway, the first movement, Allegro, starts with some sensitive playing. Okay, this word sensitive, I'm using this a lot. Okay, we're hearing a big uh, grand piano on this piece, and it's got a rich um, uh, sound to it. It's uh, a nice contrast between the massed legato opening and the more sensitive, spacious ending of that theme. Uh, the major key work has a lot of the Mozart sparkle in it. Uh, the violin theme at about one minute is appealingly played. I liked Dego's performance throughout, although she's not really the main player. The piano really carries mm. most of the music in all of these movements. Whenever Dego comes in for a solo in this movement, she really shines. I, I thought she was great in this whole album. Listen just after the two-minute mark to hear that, or to hear her. 
At 2.58, the repeat of the exposition begins. This time I notice that the pianist, uh, Federico Colli, is shaping uh, his lines more, and I'm noticing that more here. Uh, Dego's solo lines take on a more of an emotional feel this time around. I also like the way the cello is given the task of marking the rhythmic pulse rather than having the piano do it, which I thought was some nice arranging by Mozart. At around uh, the five-minute mark, and again after the five-minute, 20-second mark, you can hear that. For the development section at the six-minute mark, we suddenly veer into a surprising darker minor key uh, for the opening, and shorter lines start looking for a way to a brighter key. The material is worked out with a bit of a hush to it. At 7.30, again, very early, it sounds like we've arrived at the recapitulation. Now, if you're sitting in a room with your powdered wig on and your <laughs> sort of um, whatever kind of jackets they wore, um, you're going to think, oh, this piece is almost over at this point. But because we have CDs, we can see there's still about seven <laughs> minutes left in this movement. We know there's so, some surprise coming. And indeed there is. Um, at the 7 minute 30 second mark, we're hearing the um, recapitulation, we think, um, because we're hearing the opening theme again. It's reorchestrated a bit and at around 8.35... The second theme reappears. Uh, there's still some tonal working out being done here. And, of course, we're asking ourselves, is this still the development section or is it the recapitulation section? Oh, I don't know. So we're all confused, just like Mozart wants us to be. And also, I want to mention, just like the uh, string quartet players in Mozart's time would have been, or the piano, actually only the pianist would know because he sees the whole score. The string players only get their line. So mm -hmm. they don't know what the other musicians are going to play. And uh, so if you're sitting around with your friends uh, playing string quartets in your house and some weird harmony comes out, it's going to be something that's going to startle you as the player as well because you don't really know what's coming. Anyway, food for thought there. Okay, so we arrive at a cadence at 920, which makes the distinction more confusing still. After this, another theme begins leading to the cadence at the 10-minute mark. At 10.27, there's a cadence after which we get a coda that surprisingly brings us to the minor key again. Now, there's some development happening here as the opening motif climbs into different keys trying to extract itself. By the way, I said there's a coda. It's not a coda. It's still the development section. Don't mean to confuse you. At 11.26 or so, the opening theme tries to assert itself, but the developing themes continue afterwards. They're not done yet with their <laughs> transformation. <laughs> okay. I feel like it's someone at the gym saying, I got my workout, can we go home? And the rest of the, your friends are saying, no, we still got to do more exercise or something. The ensemble do well to unpack all of this. At 12.10 or so, we get an emphatic statement of the opening theme, so we're finally arrived. And we seem to be getting a proper recapitulation here, and we realize that all the familiar material from the seven-minute mark was just development. Actually, we kind of figured that out earlier. Crafty composition by Mozart, something Haydn and Beethoven would both appreciate. They both did this sort of thing at times, especially Haydn. A similar pattern is followed in the previous piano quartet, so there's a little coda at the end. Okay, now the second movement is a larghetto, very pretty opening theme played by a very quiet piano. And perhaps a little too quiet. I felt like this opening was so quiet that it almost had like a kind of preciousness to it. <laughs> It works fine, and the rest of the ensemble play with a hush during the whole opening. At 2.42, we get a repeat of the opening, taking with even more overtly sensitive preciousness than the opening was. And for me, it was too much. I really felt like I had to go over to my uh, Paul Lewis recording and listen to that. <laughs> now, in the Paul Lewis 
and Leopold String Trio version on Hyperion, he he takes kind of a more careful approach too. Like he's not just playing out well or bubbly either. But um, I feel like there was more life to that than this. I feel like that it's not that there's not life to it. It's just that it's so quiet and so careful that I just kind of you know f- felt like I you know didn't want to breathe because mm-hmm. I might miss something or something like that. Kind of like being at a Taylor Swift concert. You know, nobody wants to leave. <laughs> Do you know anything about this? Nothing at all. Because there's some kind of like a... She's doing like three-hour concerts and the people there like won't go to the toilet because they're afraid they might miss their favorite song. So they're all like... Oh. Staying, oh crazy stuff. Anyway. <laughs> that wouldn't happen with me. Oh, no. Definitely not with me either. I don't have any favorites. <laughs> so. Yeah. Maybe, well, I don't know. During a Mozart quartet though, I don't know. I might... Uh, have to stay there. That could be. To say. Yeah. Anyway, but I feel you can. Uh, what I'm trying to say here is, um, the, this the the quietness and sensitivity is just too overdone. I thought in this movement, I feel like you can communicate more by interpreting less in this mm-hmm. movement. Uh, the vibratoless strings at the four minute marker for me are trying for way too much sensitivity. There's a nicely taken departure into a new key at 450 by the piano, led up to and executed effectively. This material is developed, and if you can imagine it, the opening thing comes back at the 10-minute mark with a more precious feeling to it still. Maybe after all the development stuff, it just sounds that way. It's overly sensitive, like the pianist is handling something that can be shattered at the slightest wrong move. Okay, that's the the feeling I'm getting from this. The piano's ending line has a nice false cadence that one can almost miss, given how quietly he's playing it. It ends well enough with the ensemble gently laying down the final chord. I would have liked this to have been played a little more straightforwardly instead of trying to like get that really sensitive sound. I wrote delicate in my notes. Yeah, it's too delicate, though, I thought. I thought mm. it was overdone. Now, again, the Paul Lewis one is, he doesn't go for delicacy, but he does go for a kind of sort of slower tempo, mm. I think. He's not as free as like the Leopold can be when they're on their own. Anyway, that's another story. I don't want to get into that. But uh, the third movement, Allegretto, the piano starts this, gets some good rhythmic spring out of the theme. But again, why is he so sensitive and quiet with the theme? It's fine to interpret it this way. But again, I feel like he's overdoing it, making it precious and cute rather than charming. Mozart can and should be, and often is, charming, especially in his major key works. He does the figuration in his lines well. They have great clarity, and Kali breaks out of his uh, sensitive approach a bit when that's happening. At uh, 3.44, we get into some more adventurous material as the key changes. There are some nice, harrowing, brief crescendos by the strings as the piano works out its rapid figuration. Kali, by the way, has amazingly smooth trills and uh, scales as well. I was pretty impressed by that, as heard in the seventh minute. And, um, And then we get to the end of this piece. All right, so to sum up, um, I'm kind of lukewarm about this album, to be honest. I love the music. Um, I think there are highlights in the album, eh, but overall I'm going to go elsewhere, I think. The playing is very fine. The interpretations really aren't giving me much, though. In the first quartet, the one in G minor, the ensemble sounds like it's got together for some pleasant music making, and this piece is too sinister for that approach, I think. It's good expert ensemble playing but I really wanted a heavier approach to the first movement and a lighter one in the second one. Oh, a lighter one in the last uh, movement. Everything is kind of in the middle, and not bad for that, but I just felt it could have been so much better. 
Uh, more chances could have been taken with the material or with the individual player's techniques. The second quartet has a well-played first movement in which Francesca Dego's playing stood out for me. I'm kind of a fan of hers, though, so I might be <laughs> zeroing in on her. Um, I thought the pacing and phrasing gave a good sense of the labyrinthine and tricky quality of the development section. Are we still in it? Are we out of it? I liked that a lot. But I felt the interpretation of the middle movement was far too precious, as though it were given a little more volume, it would shatter. The rondo theme in the third movement is also given too much preciousness by the piano, and since it's the piano that always introduces it, it's precious every time we hear it. <laughs> I think that in the end, this ensemble isn't one that plays together often as a unit, but it's not that they're at odds with each other, but the interpretations don't sound overly of a piece. The playing is fine. The approach just wasn't to my taste. I prefer Mozart to be charming and mischievous, and here it's precious and too cautiously handled, I felt. Still, uh, these pieces aren't being recorded much these days, and I was really glad to hear these um, quartets again in a new recording. But I don't know. I still like my Paul Lewis and Leopold <laughs> String Trio recording. I'm going to go listen to that again later. I thought they were well-balanced performances overall. The recording is really nice. It's yeah, clean it really and warm sounding. I thought mm -hmm. the strings sounded really clear and I could hear all the parts. As you said, the Quartet One has a darkness to it that only some of Mozart's works have. So it's a little right. bit unusual. And I felt they weren't as comfortable with what to do with that work mm -hmm. as Quartet Two, which has a lot more familiar stylistic Mozart kind of little flares right. to it. And I, as I wrote, the piano is a little bit dainty in some spots too. But yeah. overall, they seemed more comfortable and sort of well-versed in the little mannerisms of that we often hear in Mozart that pop up in the parts in the uh, second quartet. I, I enjoy, I think these pieces do go well together because they're really contrasting. And even though the quartet one has some kind of dark urgency in spots, it's tempered by a lot of sunnier major passages. Actually, right, the of course. first, the Allegro is spending a lot, most of the time in the major key there. Uh, right. You just get pulled into a little bit of shade sometimes, and yeah. you're not really expecting that in Mozart's works. But uh, So that's why I found that work uh, kind of compelling. And yeah. I don't want to maybe go check out that other recording you mentioned, too. I think I may have a copy of that as well. Now available on streaming, because Hyperion is right. on stream, so you can actually get that. Yeah. And compare the two. I recommend you do. Hmm. Uh, Paul, Paul Lewis is a bit more straightforward, although he is a bit cautious himself. He's not really racing through these words. I don't really like that either. This is kind of like a right. an ideal balance that some pianists um, hit. Anyway, yeah. The um, by the way, the Sunnier Second uh, Quartet has some pretty dark elements in it too. In the uh, hmm. the middle sections, uh, Mozart's really good like that. Best composer ever. Although I guess they'd say Bach is, but you know Mozart's kind of. You know, I kind of think of them as like, you know, Dante and Petrarch or, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. You know, they're just kind of two opposite ends of some brilliant thing, you know, or Socrates and Plato. No, Plato and Aristotle. That's it. You know, you, you need two. You can't have just one. Got to have something to compare it to. Right. I guess. Yeah. Something that's the opposite end or a different end. Anyway, next recording, we're hearing a record called uh, Medner in England and um, the uh, artists on this are Natalia Lomelko on the violin, Alexander Karpayev on the piano, and he appears on 
all tracks on this album, so it's mainly his album. And Theodore Platt, baritone, and this is on some recordings. Okay, so Nikolai Medner was um, a Russian composer. He was kind of, he was he's Russian by birth, but he's really kind of Russian-German by temperament. I think one side of his family was German. And I think he was in um, a year ahead or in the same class as Rachmaninoff um, hmm. when they were studying uh, piano and composition. Medner was a pretty great pianist himself. And uh, he would have had to be if he wanted to play his own works because they're really, really <laughs> hard to play, which is one of the reasons. I mean, you listen to, you're going to listen to this album and you're going to see why you don't hear this music so often because it's a lot of work. And it's not because right. it's um, like list where it's got all these like amazing like pyrotechnics. It's that there are a lot of like dense lines to balance and, you know, mm. sort of bring out of the texture and the textures can be pretty dense. So uh, it's going to take the pianist a lot of work. Now, Medner had great uh, melodies, as Rachmaninoff did. But Rachmaninoff had the the he had the the better the more memorable <laughs> melodies, like the you know Gershwin level kind of melodies right. that you're just gonna never forget. So he became the more famous composer, and for various reasons, not just because of the melodies. But um, Rachmaninoff always admired Medner and saying he was like the greater composer. And the reason why is because of the the formal. Um, layout of his um, compositions. One person once said that um, Med it sa sounded like Medner had sonata form, um, like implanted in his mind at birth, like he was born mm. with that form in his brain, and he's just always like did it so well. Um, so people really admire his music, but it doesn't get played as often as it should. A lot of younger pianists now are starting to play it. Mark Andre Amlan famously made a recording of all of his sonatas, and then. Other pianists started coming out with a sonata here, a sonata there, and we're hearing some great uh, recordings. I'm going to recommend uh, Stephen Osborne's amazing recording of uh, Medner's Sonata Romantica for the solo piano. And mm. also, uh, we like uh, uh, Yevgeny Sudbin. Yeah. Um, he's, he did all the uh, piano concertos, and uh, he also did an album of some of the sonatas as well, and those are pretty mm. great. And uh, then we have this one, too, um, which is... A really amazing performance of the uh, Violin Sonata Number no. Three in E Minor, yeah. Epica. So I saw these Russian names on this album, Karpayev and Lomelko, and I was really happy about that. I was like, oh, we're gonna hear Russian people playing Russian music. You tend to be, if there are any idiomatic things in the music, people born in that culture tend to pick them up right away. Right. Okay. So French musicians will be really good with you know timbre. They'll kind of have an instinctive understanding of what to do in certain situations come up and this is i think this is true of russian music too which sounds very russian now like i said medner has medner's music has a lot of german elements in it too so there's kind of an odd balance here he's a little like tchaikovsky that way because tchaikovsky famous russian composer but he was um he studied in like the german composition school so he a lot of the um the other russian composers kind of saw him as sort of the enemy you know like, whereas mussorgsky hmm. and Borodin were trying to come up with a uniquely Russian kind of music in the 19th century. Uh, Tchaikovsky was the most famous because he, he was another guy who was gifted with great melodies. Anyway, this uh, Sonata Epica, Violin Sonata Number no. 3 by Metner in E minor, is 44 minutes <laughs> long. <laughs> and that's really long for a chamber work, right? Um, that's a long time to be hearing a violin and piano together. So it's a good title. Epica. Uh, Medner himself in the notes is quoted as saying, um, or was quoted as saying, uh, whoever heard of a short, 
epic. Well, if there is one, we're not going to hear it here. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> now, I'm going to talk about this. I find it, I'm going to say right away, I find it hard to talk about a Medner score because there are so many subtle musical events that go by so quickly and give such pleasure, and I'm incapable of isolating them. It's kind of like, do you remember the opening scene of, I don't know, if you saw like uh, Lord of the Rings and you see that giant army, you know, that's going to... Mm attack Mordor and uh, talking about a Medna work is kind of like talking about like what happens to every single one of those guys that are in the scene <laughs> those computer generated uh, people because there are so many different elements um, in this it's it's just amazing it's a pleasure to listen to and really ideal for CD or for you know recordings because you can hear them again and again this is a hard piece to play you could just hear it and it sounds like um, Lomelko and uh, Karpayev put a lot of work into this because uh, I think it's Lomeko. Sorry, I'm saying Lomelko. Lomeko and Carpe have put a lot of work into this, especially, uh, I don't want to say especially the piano, but the piano does have a lot to do in all of these works. Medner himself was a pianist. He wrote almost exclusively for the piano like Chopin. And uh, even in the songs, like a lot of the, um, when the singer isn't singing, the piano is like <laughs> just going off, you know, as we'll hear a little later. But that's true in the violin sonata too. The piano is very much an equal, if not, you know, more involved uh, partner in this work. But the violin is integral, of course, to the work. Anyway, this starts out with an introduction. The first movement. It's a four-movement work, which makes, which is also a lot for a violin. Eh, maybe not. They can have four movements too. So there's an introduction, Andante Meditamente, and then that goes into Allegro for the main section. All right, now. I actually had a little, there's a, this is a sonata, and I kind of, it's so long I couldn't really pull out the, um, it would take a few more listens for me to pull out all the uh, different sections of this, but let's listen. It starts slowly and majestically with the piano imitating slow ringing bells, and uh, they're not just any bells, they're Russian bells, and they have a special sound to them, you know, as do, say, uh, Japanese bells of, here in Japan when we hear those um Mm. You know, bells, and also the bells in the churches in Western Europe have their own sound. So anyway, we hear these um, ringing bells. Think about um, the opening of Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. That's a, that's a, those opening chords are like a bell tolling, not chiming, tolling sound. They're kind of heavy. And we get that here too. Not the same kind of melody, but it's a bell sound. The violin comes in with some gravity after that. I love the whole grave, heavy feeling that the two produce in this introduction there's passion and melody in there and it's just such a pleasure uh some really beautiful harmony in the opening of this piece it's very traditional and not but it's complicated um there's a lot in there the two allow the piece to unwind they're not in a hurry so their tempo choice is really perfect it all sounds inevitable when you listen to it yeah please listen to this and you might pick up what I mean. I can't really put it across with words, but it just all sounds so, you know, we started playing this and now it's just going to continue. Like we can't stop it. You mm. know, I don't know. So it's, it just kind of has that sort of feeling to it. At around the three minute mark, a faster, more dancing section begins. Uh, this is the beginning of the Allegro. It's rapid and there is a lot of handing off between the piano, which is busy throughout, and the violin. The balance is well achieved with the violin well-balanced in the constantly playing piano line. There's a second theme at around the 4 minute 30 second mark, which stands out enough to be memorable. In fact, all of the melodic material in this section is appealing and holds the ear, if not as steadily as 
of Rachmaninoff work might. Uh, the duo is on top of everything here. The tempo chosen has a lot to do with the unfolding way this music has of falling on the ear in this performance. It sounds very natural, and for that reason, a lot of detail is picked up, and also due to the excellent recording, and no doubt our two Russian soloists' intuitive understanding of the idiom. I like the way the rhythm seems to change with every few measures, often not on the beat, when it slips, say, from a marching rhythm at the 13-minute mark to something a little more slippery at 13.06, only six seconds later. And then it really happens throughout this section from three minutes on. It's a pleasure for the ear and really for the senses. There's some heaviness from the introduction that returns to the score in the 14th minute, bringing this fascinating movement towards the end with the church bells we opened with. So he goes back to the introduction at the end. Some beautiful violin tone, too, as the melody slips from high notes into harmonics seamlessly. Listen in the 14th minute for that. The allegro section briefly returns to lead to the final cadence. There it is. I just talked about 15 minutes of complicated music <laughs> in a fairly short time. There's a lot more than that. Listen to it. Second movement, scherzo, allegro molto vivace e leggero. This has an intriguing opening with double-stopped chords on the violin as the piano plays a slippery staccato line underneath. Uh, very much an accompaniment here <laughs> for a change. Anyway, he quietens his volume. Uh, the piano will often double and take over the violin's line briefly. And you really have to have a quick ear for that. It just happens really... You know, it's almost like this little kind of sound pleasure that you get, and you don't even have to really be hearing it to have it give you those that sort of like little chill of pleasure. You know, you just kind of sense it. The interplay between the violin and piano. And the interplay between these two musicians is fantastic. This sounds like by no means like an easy piece to play. There's a lot to think about, and the duo bring out so many details and interactions here that this will repay repeated listens. The speed taken is pretty fast, making this all the more exciting, as there are sections where one instrument will fill in a part of another's line. Uh, the melody at 4.30, which we've heard earlier, is touching in this context. We come out of it with an increase of tempo that brings us back to the racing material. The third movement, Andante con moto, the slow movement. Even the opening piano chord surprises with its additional harmony. I, I can't tell what it is, but it sounds like there are color tones in there outside of a seventh. It, doesn't, it kind of sounds like a, a bigger chord than just an added note. The violin comes in with the heavyish brooding melody. The violin has some dark colors in its tone, which is partly due to the range Medtner is writing in. At 2.36, the piano has a solo as the violin accompanies with sharply taken pizzicato chords. The violin then takes over. As so often in this work, the instruments trade the melodic line back and forth. This would seem to be a series of variations, all of them inventive and especially rhythmically interesting, but in a very subtle way. Again, interplay is fantastic. And um, there's apparently, I should have looked this up too, there's an overt statement of a Russian chant midway through the movement called um, The Chant is Christ is Risen, and it's further developed in the final movement. You can probably look that up on YouTube, mm. hear a chorus singing it so you can get the melody and identify it. In the fourth movement, um, finale, Allegro Molto, there's another really intriguing opening with bass notes in the piano and a popping high pizzicato in the violin. All four of these movements open with really interesting sounds. I, I was pretty uh, drawn by that. Mm. 
The opening sounds harsh in this movement and finally gets into some kind of dance with winding figuration at the end of lines. Again, the material and configuration of it between the violin and piano change quickly, so keep your ear glued to the speaker. This again is expertly played. This is sweeter violin melody after 132, but notice on its repeat how the harmony starts veering towards something else. In fact, this rather long final movement veers between Russianness and something more mundane, and also works in the Christ is Risen melody in various harmonies and permutations. It's a lively movement, some great playing of an amazing composition. The ending material is teasingly stretched out over the last two minutes, and it all ends on a rather casual, quick ending chord. <laughs> it's hmm. also unexpected. Okay, so tracks five and six, we get a piano sonata, the Sonata Idyll in G major, opus 56. Now, every one of um, Mendner's um, piano sonatas is highly complicated, and this was the last one I think he wrote, and he was trying to write an easier one, <laughs> and, he, and he said he found it difficult <laughs> to do. Uh, it does sound a little more spacious than a lot of his works can be. Anyway, it's nice to have this uh, recording of this. The only other performance I've ever heard of this was the one by uh, Marc-Andre Amlan on his um, survey of all of the piano sonatas, so it's nice to have something to compare that to finally. The first movement is a pastorale, allegro cantabile. It's really very simple in nature. Uh, the beginning of this solo piano piece is rather simple in contour. The pastoral title would uh, suggest that. A lot of it is note against note. It's very pretty and unwinds beautifully in uh, Alexander Karpayev's performance. There's a 3-4 rhythm, unless it's 6-8, but I think it's 3-4. It's palpable. And the music rather harmonically is rather harmonically simple, but there are some enjoyable melodic contours in there. And of course, the material changes quickly in Mendner's hands. He's, he's just got loads of ideas, and he, they have to, he has to get them all in, I think. The second movement is a little longer, Allegro Moderato e Cantabile. It's a bit more complex, too, and begins by uh, dancing a bit more. It's faster moving and has a sense that it's headed somewhere. And that's another thing. Mendner, again, would be in the uh, tradition of uh, having a, um, uh, what's the word? The, there's, a, there's a Greek word, a telos to his work. Mm. Telos means like an, an end. Like Aristotle said that everything has a telos, so like an acorn. It's telos is the oak tree. Its ending is to become an oak tree. And we get the sense that we have that in this work too. Like it's going somewhere very definite. It's just that we don't know. We, the listeners, don't know where it is yet. Especially as it's played here by Karpayev. He does a really nice increase of tempo from around 30 to 45 seconds leading to a galloping dotted rhythm theme. One thing that stands out for me in Karpiev's playing is his layering of the melodic material against the accompaniment and counterpoint. This is a key part of playing Mendner's pieces on the piano, and not all pianists achieve it as well as Karpiev does here. He seems to have a deep understanding of the score. Surely a lot of work was done on preparation for this album. This movement features constant rushing lines underneath any thematic material. The recording is on the dry side, which assists greatly in aiding the listener in following all of the intricate lines. Uh, but the recording has good room ambience as well, so it sounds like alive. It's good, though, that it's a little drier because if there was lots of reverb in the room, we'd miss a lot of these lines, and they're really subtle. Very pretty, extended ending, as in the Violin Sonata, with some lovely trills at the end. Okay, from track 7 to 14, this is quite a, some variety in this program. We get eight songs, 
by Medner, Opus 61. Now, all of these songs came out uh, posthumously. They were published posthumously. And uh, two of them are German, and uh, the other six are Russian. And uh, the German and Russian songs sound very different from each other. Hmm. <laughs> I think uh, just the sound of the language inspired Metner differently. The first song is called Reiselied, which means travel song. It, it's on a poem by Josef von Eichendorf, a poem by him. Here the text is something free of care. The listener wends his way through nature and life. And here we're hearing Theodore Platt on baritone for the first time. It's a rich voice here singing in German. He gets a bit of a teardrop in the voice at times at lines such as Der Himmel ist mein Dach, which means the sky is now my roof. So listen for that line to see what I mean here. That's in the second verse. Platt varies his tone a bit to match the mood of each verse and the layout of the melody. We're in for something good in these songs. So it starts out well. Track 8, Nachtgruß, Good Night, also Josef von Eichendorf poem. The text is about going to sleep and leaving behind the cares of the day for the silent realm of night where a new king takes the throne. Okay, very romantic. <laughs> Platt is brought pretty high in his range in this song, especially in the second and third verses. You'll also want to notice the piano accompaniment. Mender always has the piano heavily involved in the narrative line of his compositions. We get to the Russian songs next. There are six of them. Track nine, what is my name to you? I, the, the titles are given in Cyrillic. <laughs> even if I could read them, I wouldn't even try to pronounce them. I need a Russian friend to help me through this. Anyway, this is a Pushkin poem. The words are given in Cyrillic in the booklet with an English translation. Now, the voice really seems to deepen here, as though the Russian language has depths to plow. And I think Medner might be writing uh, in the lower range here, too. It's a song about how a life isn't memorable, but the singer pleads to his listener to have some memory of him. The voice does move up in a pretty high register toward the end, uh, thinning out a bit, but never losing its rich tone. Track 10, If Life Deceives You. This is number four of the eight songs. Pushkin, again, is the poet. And the poem is about looking forward to a day of celebration. Uh, the present is joyless. The heart lives in the future. Everything will pass. And in the future, those past things will be cherished. It's a nice sentiment, really. A nice poem, rather quietly set here, but with a lot of bass in the piano. The vocalist remains in his mid-range for most of the piece. Track 11, Prayer. This is uh, song number five. The poet is Mikhail Lermontov, and he talks about a prayer that can relieve the burden of the soul and bring lightness. There's some lovely held notes at the end of verses by Platt here. I have to say, I, I can't really judge his Russian singing. I do like his, um, his tone in these songs. I really don't know how well he's pronouncing this language, though. I'm assuming it's very good, though. I, don't, I can't... It doesn't sound... English is what I'm saying. It sounds, you know what I mean? Because we heard right. the Rachmaninoff Vespers earlier in the year, and I thought it wasn't Russian sounding right. enough, you know. But uh, that's not the case here. It sounds pretty good. Uh, track 12, uh, Noon. This is uh, number six of the songs. Poet is Fyodor Tyushev. This is a nature scene painting a sleepy picture. The piano lulls you, and the vocals are deep but on the softer side. Track 13, Oh My Foreboding Soul, song number 7, Tushev again. The text speaks of the worry of the soul, which inhabits two worlds, daytime, reality, and dreams. 
The vocalist carries a lot of the song, but there's a section where the piano is pretty busy and accompanying. There's a beautiful climb to the ending chords on the piano, too. And in track 14, Repose, this is song number eight, um, the poet is Tushev again. The rippling piano lines open this. The repose comes from the soul being carried away by a greater wave than life, as water is carried away by its rushing. Hmm. Platt is very good in these Russian pieces. I have to say I felt he was more expressive in the German ones at the beginning, but I can't really tell because I don't speak Russian. I don't really speak German either. I know enough of it, though, to kind of to get it. I've heard enough German songs in my life. Anyway, at the end, um, this is an amazing performance of the violin sonata, the best I've heard, and I have two other recordings of this. One of them is by Chloe Henslip on Hyperion on the violin. I forget who the pianist is on that. But that's a pretty great performance as well. But I really loved this one. I think this is the best one I've heard. Lomeko and Karpayev are on top of every intricacy in the score and bring it to vivid life. They're in character throughout and well-balanced. So you really want to hear this album for that piece. But the other ones are great too. The Piano Sonata is beautifully performed as well, with all of the voices in balance. It's short and not as complex as the Violin Sonata, but pays dividends too. The songs are all expressive. I found Theodore Platt to be more expressive in the German tunes, but that could be because I don't know Russian. Medner clearly sets Russian texts differently than the German ones, where he heads to the higher range more often. This is one of the better sets of Medner performances out there, and we get a rare performance of some of Medner's songs. This is unmissable if you're interested in the composer, and if you're not, I'd encourage you to hear at least the Violin Sonata anyway. It's really great music making, of some great music in my opinion, uh, especially in that piece. I'm most familiar with Medner's piano works, although I have heard this Violin Sonata before. It's a huge work, as you mm, yeah. described, but I was pretty captivated by it mostly because of this great violin tone here. Mm. And the interpretation was really enthralling. I didn't feel it got sort of bogged down in all the intricacies of the lines. It seems to mm. be going somewhere all the time. And I was right there following it through. So excellent performance, as you said. The Sonata is interesting. It's kind of like he tried to make a lighter work. And that worked for the first movement because it has a lot of pleasant melodies and spaciousness. The second movement is really different in character. It's quite <laughs> rhythmic, and I sense this kind of forward-pushing feel through it, uh, which yeah. is kind of interesting. Uh, so that, you know, I really enjoy Mettner's piano works in general, so this was no exception. The songs here I found rather brooding <laughs> in yeah, character. Yeah, they are brooding. I did enjoy I kind Platt's, of expected that, though. <laughs> I liked Platt's voice quality a lot, and a lot was required of him in different registers. And so I thought he was quite good. I highlighted track 12 on uh, mm. noon as okay. kind of unique. It has these kind of dreamy harmonies, almost a bit impressionistic and uh, creating this kind of scene. Uh, the words match that kind of feel. So I thought that one stood out to me as something a little bit different from the others. All right. So yeah, discover the music of Nikolai Metner. Okay, now the um, the next album is is going to have to be one that we're going to have to name this uh, episode after because it's really unique. Uh, it's called Dependent Arising, and uh, it's a set of two violin concertos. The violinist is Rachel Barton Pine, a, a favorite of mine. I would recommend listeners to check out her uh, Sonatas and Partitas for solo violin by Bach 
their spectacular performances. And also, she's done a lot of uh, recordings of um, black American composers. So she really championed their music, which was forgotten for a long time and is now making a... Uh, there's a revival for it now. Now, more and more people are playing it. But she was really a pioneer there. And now here she is playing a contemporary work as well as um, a Shostakovich violin concerto. She's accompanied by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Tito Munoz. And this is on the CD label. And at the moment, it's not on a CD. There's only a download. And that's a shame, because I, this is one I'm going to want to own. Because I felt this album, it was really good. And it's also unique. It's one of these like standalone recordings that you really um, want to have. I think about the um, Arvo Pert, um Chamberworks album on ECM records with Keith Jarrett playing on it. <laughs> Just something. Hmm. It doesn't sound like any other album of his music. And uh, this one kind of had that effect on me too. Let's talk about the works first. Now, let me. I'll tell you what we're going to hear. We're going to hear Shostakovich's Violin Concerto Number no. One, and then we're going to hear a work by uh, contemporary composer Earl Manin, who's also a heavy metal uh, musician. Uh, I think he's got a band. He's from Queens. His band is called Resolution Fifteen. And uh, his um, this is his violin concerto, which has a lot of heavy metal influences in it. Uh, I'm sure you want me to get right to that, but let's wait, because <laughs> uh, let's talk about the Shostakovich first and just go in order. The first four tracks are Shostakovich's violin concerto number one in A minor, opus 77. Now, Manin writes, uh, I'm so I'm saying his name right, Manin, Manin, okay, I'm going to say Manin. He writes the notes, and um, he's not a music scholar, but probably because of that, he's more insightful than most when he talks about the music, because he is, after all, a composer. Now, he kind of apologizes in the notes, oh, I don't know as much as um, these scholars. That's really not true. Scholars get sort of um, locked into their idea of things, and they generally don't hear a lot. I, I often like it when composers write notes about things, because mm. they have like a practical working sort of... Um, understanding of what's happening in music in general. It's more, they have more of a fluid and less of a rock-like kind of way of sort of talking about it. Anyway, when he writes about this Shostakovich concerto, well, first of all, Barton Pine says that Shostakovich is perhaps the most beloved composer of metalheads, of which she was one when she was a child. So she <laughs> learned the violin while she was headbanging to her favorite metal bands. Uh, Shostakovich's music is often defiant in the face of oppression, and that may be the basis of its appeal to metal fans. And Manin himself relates his first experience with Shostakovich's Eighth String Quartet. And I don't know if listeners know that one. It's a famous one. It's really, like, brain-changing. It's, it's harrowing. It's, 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 in a way, it's... You kind of get this really this horrific, horrified feeling when you hear it, and there are no words in it, but you kind of get the message. It's just that well composed. It's a piece with a level of alienation and fraught psychology similar to metal and hardcore punk, is what he says. When Shostakovich wrote this violin concerto that we're going to hear on this album, he had been denounced for the second time, accused of formalism, in quotation marks, by a Stalin lackey. And in this piece, we can discern in the violin part a troubled protagonist struggling against unbeatable sinister forces. Shostakovich held on. This is really the opposite of Beethoven. Uh, Shostakovich held on to the concerto for seven years, and David Oistrakh finally gave the premiere two years after Stalin's death 
Um, they had to wait for Stalin to die before they wrote this, before people were able to hear this piece. And in a way, it's sort of about his state, Stalin's, um, the state that Stalin ran. The first movement is a nocturne, and it's uh, marked moderato, and its key um, feeling is desperation. Now, I want to talk about Manin's notes, the the composer um, Earl Manin, because he's really insightful. He indicates that he he's a violinist as well. He plays violin in a metal band, go figure. When he studied this piece for a competition, his teacher said he didn't observe the pianissimo marking indicated for large sections of the movement. In other words, he was too open with the dark emotions. He played them for all to see and hear, where Shostakovich wanted pianissimo to demonstrate the intensity of repression, and so playing it loudly was out of line with the understanding that in Soviet Russia, people spoke their minds maybe only to their intimate partners at night under the covers. And uh, that's what's being put across in this piece. Let's keep that in mind when we hear these pianissimo passages. Anyway, in... uh, Barton Pine's performance, it starts with her entering quietly after a set of two-note phrases in the strings. It's a sad opening theme. Here is elsewhere, she's got a beautiful rounded tone and conveys a lot of expression through it. The violin has been pretty much building on the two-note opening pattern in the strings. A crisis point is reached at about 225. It tapers off immediately afterwards. Gorgeous, satisfying cadence is heard at 3 minutes and 10 seconds after which the music continues toward another crisis reached a 345, also fairly quickly tapering off. There's a lovely muted theme in the fifth minute in the violin, with the orchestral strings even further muted. The whole passage shimmers, but not in an enchanting way. There are harp harmonics heard at the beginning of the sixth minute. The woodwinds come in in the seventh minute for some foreboding harmony. The violin moves to double stopping here as the strings swirl upwards with it. There are some odd dissonances in the violin, as if it's untuned or losing its tuning, but that sound is fully intended by Shostakovich and Barton Pine here. That happens at around the eighth minute. We arrive shortly afterwards at the two-note patterns heard at the beginning of the movement. The ending features a very pretty, slow harp arpeggio upwards as the violin ends on a note in its highest range. The second movement, Scherzo, has um, sort of that um, goofy sort of... um, cynical rhythm that um it's it's kind of like satirical humor i guess or, or kind of cynical humor that uh ironic humor let's say that uh, shostakovich uh uses in a lot of his works and this comes across as a social justice protest there's a bit of gallows humor in the beginning with the flute and bass clarinet bouncing around now we're big fans of the bass clarinet uh in general but here it's used in a <laughs> kind of a, we, we like it when it's used in its more kind of rich tone. Here it's just being used for a kind of, let's say, expressive effect. Uh, Manin says this is one possible reaction to death staring you in the face. There are also klezmer elements in the movement, which Manin says is a ballsy move. That's the word he used. Can I say that on the podcast? I guess so. <laughs> there it is. Because of Stalin's anti-Semitic campaigns. So having a klezmer working, mm-hmm. <laughs> a klezmer section in your piece would be quite a protest. So this is one of the uh, ironic movements that Shostakovich uh, used a lot. Barton Pine gets a throaty sound out of her dug-in, quick-bow attack at the beginning, and this continues throughout much of the movement. It's an intriguing sound that makes one sit up and take notice, as do the slashing smooth glissandos on the violin just before the first minute. Circusy material enters afterwards in the sense of a 
Pennywise the Clown feeling of the circus. <laughs> so more of a terrifying circus. The material becomes more directly sinister in the second minute. A really hysterical peak is reached in the orchestra after 2.30. Then the violin plays a slashed-out set of themes over pizzicati in the orchestral violins. It's a nice effect, sounding like the pizzicati could be coming from the soloist. From the four-minute mark, the movement becomes more intensely and enjoyably unhinged as the rhythm is set off in high relief via both solo and orchestra. At 5.50, a sort of desperate circus atmosphere emerges, and there's a big tension built via a prolonged stay on a single chord until the movement releases to its cadence. Third movement, Pasakai, a very famous movement mostly because of its very long cadenza that starts halfway through. And it has like a relentless kind of feeling to it. Now, Pasakaya has a ground bass that's improvised over. Uh, the ground bass, uh, giving the Pasakaya its form here, conveys feelings of tension and dread. The cadenza comes out of silence, is huge, uses motifs from the previous movements, and reaches a ferocity unparalleled in the violin literature, according to Manin. The bass line is punctuated by brass and timpani, making an intense, a sort of religious feeling comes out of the wind's smooth chords just before the first minute. The violin comes in with a touching, deeply heartfelt theme in the second minute. The Pasakaya theme has quietened in the bass, but it's still driving the piece. I really like the bassoon counterpoint, right? at least I think that's a bassoon, during the violin solo in the third minute. The solo builds in intensity, as does the accompaniment, as the fourth minute goes on, where we have low brass doubling the Pasakaya bass line, really emphasizing it. In the sixth minute, the material quietens down as the violin delivers its melody in deeply heartfelt playing by Barton Pine. In the seventh minute, the bass line is heard pizzicato as the violin repeats its notes, emphasizing them, before moving on to the rest of the melody. At 8.15, there's a quiet timpani roll as the violin starts its cadenza, which is a long and a big and very expressive one. The cadenza proper begins at around 8.48. There was a preparation to it before that. It starts quietly and pleadingly with some beautiful tone and gorgeous harmonics at the top end. I have to mention there are odd stoppings of not only violin tone, but room ambience at the end of complete passages that are followed by silence. I'm wondering if the engineer is doing that or if the cadenza was recorded in separate takes. I should probably listen to this in headphones and make sure I heard it. Mm. Though. Anyway, it doesn't matter because what follows in the 11th minute is extremely intense, featuring slashing, double-stopped chords, and hysterical rushes to top notes. The recording is very close, as we can hear Barton Pine's bow striking the strings clearly in rapid passages. It's very impressive playing here, and very intense. The fourth movement, Burlesque, starts and opens with a tutti because the original soloist David Oistrock requested that he be given a few minutes to wipe his brow after the cadenza, <laughs> which is very intense. Anyway, Manin says he loves the grim, relentless sarcasm of this movement. The presto ending is based on a motif drawn from the Pasakaya. It's a sudden speed up that's also used in metal music to indicate a ramping up of intensity. The violin line suddenly stops as the orchestra comes in with this cartoonish opening. Then we hear the violin playing swooping, wild lines. The hairpin turns required of the violin in this movement are mesmerizingly played. The orchestra is right on top of her all the way in the accompaniment, especially impressive in the third minute's pizzicati and raucous follow-up. It's an exhilarating performance to this movement, right up to its pulling one out of one seat ending. 
All right. Well, we've had some quite some intensity in that piece, but uh, boy, we're going to go for something of a completely different order in tracks five through seven. This is Earl Manin's work, Dependent Arising, Concerto for Violin and Orchestra. As I mentioned, Manin is from Queens, New York, and is the songwriter and lead violinist of the guitarless metalcore band Resolution 15. That'd be interesting to hear, <laughs> metal without guitars. He wrote a metal-inspired work for unaccompanied violin called Metal Organic Framework, and he wrote this for Rachel Barton Pine, which she premiered in 2014. I wouldn't mind hearing a recording of that. Next came this violin concerto. Manin says the concerto confronts the listener with unpleasant emotions through music that openly confronts pain and suffering, as does the Shostakovich concerto we just heard. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're saying, I don't want to feel unpleasant emotions, I'm not listening to this, please listen. <laughs> I think I think you're going to really like this. Um, I didn't really... Okay, well, let me let me talk a little bit more about this. I don't want to give anything away yet. Uh, the concerto draws inspiration from the world of extreme metal, from the Western European classical music tradition, and from Manin's practice as a Buddhist, uh, from which the concerto gets its title. Now, for me, these these um, unpleasant emotions that he talks about, if you practice Buddhism, they're not really terribly unpleasant. You just kind of get used to them. Uh, I, have, I myself have done quite a bit of Zen Buddhism in Japan. It's one of the reasons I came here. So um, I kind of was really eager to hear this piece because of its Buddhist um, sort of feeling to it. Now, Mani is going into these really... Zen is more about nothingness. It's it's a little different than what he's um, talking about here. He's a little more traditional in his Buddhist practice here. Manin says the concerto is a musical statement based on the Buddhist concept of all things arise in dependence upon other things. So that's where the title comes from, dependent arising. Nothing in the universe or any universe happens independently, and all things lack self-existent substance. There is no cessation, no production, no annihilation or permanence, no coming or going, and no difference or sameness. Some of the metal terms used by Manin in describing this work are, he talks about blast beats, which is, if I don't know if people listen to, I doubt people listening to this podcast listen to much heavy metal. Although, I don't know, some of us find our way to classical music via heavy metal, as I did. I don't listen to heavy metal anymore, though. Too loud. I liked it when I was younger. Anyway, a blast beat is when you're playing the uh, the kick drum, the snare drum, and the sort of symbols at the same time. And uh, you can do all these wild patterns on it. Check them out on YouTube. There are lots of videos describing how they're done, actually. Breakdowns. A breakdown is uh, when there's a sudden tempo shift, so it doesn't like slowly slow down. It just suddenly cuts to half its tempo, like in a single beat. Okay, half as slow as the preceding section. Then there's mosh sections. Those of us who have spent time in a mosh pit might uh, <laughs> know about this. But this is a sudden tempo shift that uh, moves twice as fast as the preceding section. And then there's chugs. A chugging on a, an electric guitar is when you kind of mute the strings with the palm of your hand. And you just keep playing the same chord, you know, over and over. That sound is called chugging. We're going to hear all four of these things in this piece. And it's pretty fascinating because it works in the orchestra and the violin. Okay. Grasping at the self is the name of the first movement. And uh, Manin says, The violin's entrance is meant to express the universal fear of death and the resulting stunning realization that all our ambition, grasping, hopes, aspirations, dreams, and wishes are, as long as one remains tied to desire, 
ultimately fruitless. Now, if you don't want to practice Buddhism, you can um, learn about the ultimate fruitlessness of your activity by starting a podcast. Anyway, <laughs> so I, I, I think we're already well on our way to Buddhist enlightenment just because we do a podcast. Anyway, what follows are riffs in the orchestra derived from metal. Now, if you think about a guitar riff, it's sort of like a short melodic phrase. It gets repeated a lot. And we're going to hear that like in a metal or even a rock tune. One result of the hybrid musical styles is that the soloist has to push her own voice over the orchestra in the most relentlessly aggressive way. Now, the recording helps her, I think, a little bit, too, because she's um, placed forward, I guess, by the microphones. But um, she gets a pretty powerful tone and some really ugly sounds, too, in this piece, which was just fascinating for me. Anyway, the piece starts quietly with distant timpani. Uh, the opening violin is striking. The orchestration at first is eerie, and the overall sound is disorienting. It's compelling right from the start. Now, the violin has a lot of double stops. We hear what would be a mosh section at about the one-minute mark, then a breakdown followed quickly by another mosh section, all from one minute to one minute and 30 seconds. So if you want to get those terms under your belt, you can just listen to that 30 seconds and hear what it means from what you hear in the tempo there. At the minute and 47 seconds, we get some blast beat adaptations. You can hear this specifically at the two-minute mark and at 2.03, or in between that. The, that section, two minutes to two minutes and three seconds. And a lot of chugging in the double stopping and bowing in the second minute. So right away we've heard all of those uh, elements and they're going to come up again and again in this piece. While this piece isn't amplified, the techniques actually make it heart racing and intense. The writing is very busy, both for soloists and orchestra. There's a pause at 4.15 and a real breakdown into a sweet melody with light string accompaniment. The orchestra builds up into a repeating pattern. This would be riffs here, I guess. And we hear a wildly orchestrated brass section at the five-minute mark. There's some light chiming percussion in the quiet section in the fifth minute as the violin melodically rhapsodizes. At 6.45, this section abruptly and brutally ends and we hear a repeating riff in the violin in the seventh minute, followed by a melody with fierce blasts of brass. I have to say, the inventiveness with the orchestration is impressive, and it all registers well. You can hear some orchestra riffs being sequenced after 7.45, reaching an abandoned climax at 8.08, where the violin picks it up and plays what sounds like a cadenza. It sounds tough to play, and the harsh tone used here is pretty cool. <laughs> something you don't hear often in classical music. The cadenza is intense all the way through and consists of a lot of double-stopped repeated riffs. The orchestra crashes in at 10.15 with the violin still wildly digging in. As the 12th minute goes on, we hear the tempo slowly build up to a higher speed. Then at around 12.45, a sudden mosh section erupts out of that effect. The movement ends on an aggressive phrase that's suddenly interrupted. The second movement of three is called The Crows Already Knew of Your Grief, They Will Carry Him Home. And this was written shortly, Menin says, after a friend of his died of kidney cancer. In early Buddhism, monks would sit in meditation at a graveyard where bodies were left to decompose in open air. At one point during the guided meditation, the monk would be instructed to visualize a crow feasting upon his own corpse. <laughs> The movement is a meditation on grief 
meant to augment the appreciation of daily life through a deeper understanding of its ephemeral nature. Um, I'd like to mention, by the way, I was in uh, Ischia, where my family originates from, and there's a castle there. This is in Italy, and um, there was a room in this um, sort of place where monks used to live, and there were all these rocks, and they would used to leave back in older days like dead bodies to just rot and rot there. And they'd come and observe them every day too, much like in this um, Buddhist scene that um, Manin uh, describes. They don't do it anymore, <laughs> but uh, this, I, this is a story that the, the locals told me. Anyway, the movement starts, um, like the first, very slowly. Then we get a tempo buildup and a crescendo, uh, followed by some gorgeous wind playing by the orchestra, accompanied by harp. It's actually very pretty. The violin's entry keeps this going with a full vibrato traditional melody, this actually comes across rather romantically, which, by the way, is not out of place in heavy metal music. Heavy metal has a lot of, um, part of the reason they like classical music is because of, you know, there's the focus on death and things like that. But there are also the uh, medieval themes. Think about Grieg's Pier Gint, things like that. So the romantic kind of is very present, uh, I think, in the minds of heavy metal people, if, if not in the loud, crunchy chords. But we hear some uh, rather romantic playing here. At 2.32, an ominous climax is reached, after which the violin starts a double-stopped solo section. Uh, I won't call it a cadenza, with occasional percussion punctuating. The violin continues its melody with Barton Pine utilizing her exquisite full tone all the way. In fact, she's showing a lot of different types of timbres that she could come up with on uh, her instrument. Pretty amazing. At 5.15, there's another crescendo, and tempo speeds up. The orchestra starts playing a repeated riff, which the violin picks up and extends. At 6.27, there's a loud orchestral interjection with full-on percussion, and the violin comes in with full tone and double stops, sounding anguished. Over quiet orchestral riffs, it continues its previous melody. At 9.40, there's a tearing, harsh, double-stopped glissando into a cadenza, heavily accented, and often double-stopped, especially in melodic passages. I love the high screaming sound at 10 minutes and 30 seconds, which is very unique, a very unique sound for the violin. I have to say, Manin is getting some serious sounds out of the instrument via his composition, and Barton Pine provides all of them. He's also a good orchestrator, I have to say. I really enjoyed his orchestra writing, too. The cadenza rises and crashes into the third movement, which is called Gate Gate Paragate Parasam Gate Bodhisvaha, which is the, and I have said this many times myself, this is the, the complete text of the Heart Sutra that uh, Buddhist monks chant. It basically means, I think it's Sanskrit, I'm not sure, but it could, it means gone, gone, gone beyond, gone well beyond enlightenment that may be realized. So it's a celebration of um, total enlightenment, I guess. It is Manin's and Buddhism's wish for all beings. The movement is meant to embody wrath as a transformational tool, which in Buddhism, subtly but fundamentally, differs from the concept of anger. Wrathful Buddhist deities serve the purpose of confronting us in our delusions or pushing us into greater compassion, and they sometimes do it harshly. But the uh, comparison that Manin makes and that Buddhists often make is like a mother who slaps the hand of her child who's about to touch the flame on a stove. So they're, they're helping mm. us out when they're 
when you so i don't know if you see any buddhist demons they're, they're trying to help you they want you to to get to the uh buddhist life. so uh you know do it do what they tell you or well they'll make you do what you're supposed to do anyway Anyway, when used appropriately, wrath fiercely cuts through ignorance, defilement, and unskillful action. So the movement starts at high energy with crashing offbeat percussion, offering background to the constantly traveling violin line. The movement is wild with some impressive virtuosity from Barton Pine, always in full control of her tone and capable of many different timbres without resorting to effects like harmonics or sul ponticello. It's pretty amazing. I think she achieves a lot of this just with her bow. At the two-minute mark or so, there's a sudden metal breakdown as the tempo slows and the music marches on like a destroying force. The movement is aggressive and harsh. At 3.35, there's a sweeping away of the aggressive forces and a lovely wind harmony emerges. The violin repeats the wind harmony double-stopped and brings it further in as she plays. Some racing virtuosic bowing is heard at 4.55. Some slamming blast beat oriented percussion accompanies the violin line's ascent to the final note, ending this exhilarating concerto. Yes, exhilarating. This, it might be at times like ugly and like harsh, but it's exciting, I thought, all the way through. Wild and aggressive it may be, but Menin's violin concerto, Dependent Arising, is also eminently listenable. At least if you like rock music as I do. It's actually very exciting, and any rock idioms in the work come across effectively, meaning the violinist and orchestra conduct and conductor know something about it. It's an excellent performance. I'd imagine the best we'll ever get of this work. I mean, who else is going to play with this intensity? <laughs> I don't know. The piece may have metal elements, but they're all well integrated into the material, and the form of the piece is satisfying to those of us listening for the long structural line. Really amazing, and uh, louder than uh, Christopher Rouse, who <laughs> I think was always had a lot of loud pieces. It's a sad that Rouse died. I bet he would like this work. It's, it's, it's too bad he won't get to hear it. I found it very exciting. He came from a rock background as well, so... Christopher Rouse did. Yeah. yeah, he was a drummer and percussionist, I think. Right. Anyway, the Shostakovich also comes across well with Barton Pine putting across its anxiety. One of the things that makes this recording so compelling is that Barton Pine will go for ugly sounds when they suit her expressive purposes, and I'm always happy to hear expression over beauty. That said, there's plenty of beautiful tone in the Shostakovich as well of the second movement as the Menin piece. It really is a recording that needs to be heard. It's very different. And if you grew up listening to rock music, this is an easy entry into the world of classical music. Use this record to convert your friends who don't want to hear this. Uh, right now, the album is only available, as I said, via streaming. I certainly hope it's going to come out on CD. CD uh, records usually do. Sometimes they take time. Uh, because I need this album in my collection. 20 years from now, I want to see it on my shelf, pull it down and listen again. And then attain the light enlightenment of the Buddha. <laughs> well, this Shostakovich piece, like a lot of his works, really wears me out. <laughs> it's <laughs> brooding. I, and I do understand what it's supposed to express. And it does that well. But I feel kind of drained. <laughs> at the end I, I think it. this whole album wears you out. But it's a, it's like a like after a workout. And it's good for you, I think. It, it was <laughs> you know? well played and with excellent 
violin tone. And I didn't really know what to expect with this money. And, you know, you had told me, yeah. you know, metal influenced. Uh, so I, <laughs> I was actually pleasantly surprised. When I picked this, I said, metal influenced. And then I just wrote it on the list of things we have to talk about. I didn't even listen to it. <laughs> it wasn't what I expected. I really actually enjoyed the orchestration. Lots of dynamic percussion and exciting brass. Yeah, huh? It's, 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 it's a really exciting work. Yeah, as I was expecting, there is a lot of head-banging violin shredding going on in here. Yeah. But okay. there are some surprisingly sweet contrasting sections that I was uh, not expecting in there. Hmm. And all throughout each movement, the development is completely unpredictable <laughs> and kept me always surprised as to what was going to be coming next. So... I was very entertained and it held my interest all the way through. He does seem to have a talent for orchestration, yeah. uh, getting some interesting colors and keeping things really exciting as they go along. And so yeah, it'd be interesting to hear something else he does in the future as well. Yeah, I thought this was interesting. I'm kind of interested in that um, solo violin um, metal work that he wrote for yeah. Rachel Barton. I wouldn't mind hearing that. So hopefully someone will record that. Hopefully she'll record it. it has to be right. her. Who else is going to play it? Well, you know, it's interesting mm. to me when we talked to Nicholas Sivalov, you know, I really tried to get inside his head as to how he sort of paints the orchestral colors coming right. from the keyboard. And his answer didn't help me at all. <laughs> he sort of told it's, us that he's yeah. already playing the orchestra when he's at the keyboards and the colors just came out. So, yeah, I I get what he means though, because I think it just you just have that shortcut thing that you I guess do you know it's kind of but it's always interesting to me then to you know have someone coming from a different musical background and then yet be able to choose and assign sounds in an interesting mm -hmm. way to different instruments. So yeah, I was pleasantly surprised there. I think create you know creativity like that it has something to do with that whole story about. Um, the, the dancing centipede and you know i think some ant asked the centipede you know when you do your dance uh which leg do you move first and he starts oh. thinking about it and then he can't dance anymore <laughs> you know he just does it i think this you just come up with your method and i guess you just do it and you don't really know how you're doing it what i'm trying to get at i think is you know there's different like musical gifts mm. so one of course as we were talking with uh, metner and rachmaninoff is the mm. gift of melody right yeah so just to be able to come up with wonderful melodies uh, mm -hmm. in any genre. Then there's harmony, putting all these colors to something in that sense. But then there's also the timbral colors of assigning instruments. And so the orchestra is the largest canvas that we know of to write for, you know. So how right. do you choose all of those different instruments? And I worry, mm -hmm. you know, because of the decline in music education in public hmm. schools. And one thing I always took for granted is I just knew the sound of every instrument because I grew yeah. up, you know, playing in bands and orchestras. Yeah. So I knew what every what instrument Benjamin sounded Brit like. Benjamin Britten, Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra is like a yeah. guide to like what each instrument exactly. sounds like. Peter and the Wolf, you know, by Prokofiev. Too many people today who wouldn't be able to tell you what a clarinet sounds like or a trombone or right. an English horn. And you know, that's kind of sad because that's a, the colors of the instruments are really important to have a grasp of, to appreciate the orchestra. And so when I hear like a new concept of that, I'm kind yeah, of Yeah, the interested. timbres of the orchestra, this is like the colors you would paint with, you know, exactly. if you were a painter and you know the names of the colors, you know. Right. Because you, you, you know, you see them and you talk about them every day, but sounds, we're funny about sound. We don't, mm. 
you know, like I'm a more, I'm not a terribly visual person. I'm very much more sound oriented. And I think people like that are a little rare because people usually don't understand what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go over to the jazz side. I've got a really great group of recordings for you this week. We're going to cover some really experienced jazz masters we've got an up-and-comer and we've got a recording that's uh an advanced preview we're going to talk about you're going to have to wait a while to hear it but it's going to be a great one as well we'll start out with a real guitar jazz master that's john hart mm. his new recording on steeplechase records called resonance and that came out august 15th so it's pretty fresh john hart was born in 1951 in virginia He got to New York City in 1984, and he performed, recorded with organist Jack McDuff for about 16 years. He played with a lot of other big names, uh, Japanese trumpeter, Tara Hino, Jimmy Smith, Lou Donaldson, and also in his 1992 John Hart Quartet, he played with uh, Chris Potter, who was a member. There's a big name in jazz now. And he's also been a member of the Maria Schneider Orchestra. As well, so you that's, may have heard him there. That's impressive for me because I mm. think those guys are just great. He's a lecturer at the University of Miami Frost School of Music. He's released lots of uh, CDs as a leader on Blue Note, Concord, Index labels. He's been on over 100 CDs as a sideman, and I believe this recording is his fifth release on the Steeplechase label. And one of the things that caught uh, my eye when I saw this on the new release is one of our favorite organists, Brian Charette, oh, yeah. on the old Hammond B3 here. Also here, Rich Perry on tenor sax. We've heard him before, way back, uh, episode 29, Sexual Healing. <laughs> that, oh, was yeah. that, was a good, that was one of our better titles, yeah. I thought. Yeah. That was his recording, Happy Destination. And the group surrounded out with Steve Johns on drums. We've got a nice mix of originals. And some interesting selections here in this program. We'll start out with a John Hart original, the title track, Resonance. It's a very wispy tune. It's got kind of a halftime feel to start compared to how it feels once it gets chugging along. If you count it at the halftime kind of beat, there's a four-measure intro with light cymbals from John's over an organ chord and some sparse guitar figures. The melody has legato descending sax lines from Perry, that Hart sometimes joins and also works around with chords and fills. It has different four-measure alternating A and B sections that repeat. Then there's a rising C section of the melody that goes around twice into a final A section. It's got an extra measure then, and that gets Hart launched on a solo. He starts with snappy little figures. Charette gets the organ bass going into fast double-time walking in sections, and Hart's lines get more flowing. There's melodic lines punctuated with chords, suddenly and surprisingly sometimes, with a great warm tone. And Charette keeps that organ chord kind of soft and rich underneath everything. Perry's solo on sax really swings and flows with smoothness. And Charette has bouncy melodic figures and zippy lines in his organ solo on this tune, all with a great soft tone. They go around that melody again, and they vamp on the ending minor chords, for Hart and Perry to have some final fluid improvisations together. Charette gets that bass pumping at double time, and Johns builds up the drums to a big finish. Track two, also a Hart original, Sun King. 
A drum roll brings in this 3-4 meter minor tune. There's an 8-measure intro and a 24-measure melody with slinky unison lines in the Saxon guitar. It's atmospheric and sparse with a big gap before the final section. They go around twice with Hart adding more and more tasty soft fills and he solos first. It's got a lot of tasty navigation through the harmonies on this tune, little tumbling figures before he gets into some more speedy double time lines. There's cool high interval ideas and weepy bends in his guitar. Sometimes he surprises you with a sudden strummed chord. Charette's got the organ bass walking nicely and excellent drum accents from John's here. Perry has some fun lazy phrased harmonic meandering to get his solo started. Uh, gets into some more edge on his tone on this one as he builds in intensity to fast flurries and rhythmic ideas. Charette's solo has some cool minor scale work uh, before a bluesy twist and a super speedy set of ideas of descending lines. I'm impressed with John's drum accents and fills that are loose but precise as they take it through the melody again with a final phrase repeat and a little outro with some final flurries from heart to end it. We'll get a standard for track three, the old Richard Rogers Spring is Here. Oh, yeah. It had lyrics by Lorenz Hart from the musical I Married an Angel, 1938. Hmm. I like those Rogers and Hart songs. Oh, yeah. They're all great. Yeah. They give this one a light Brazilian feel with an 18-measure intro of wispy alternating sax notes from Perry and light fills from Hart and a little break into the melody, which Perry takes. Hart adds harmony on the rising lines of the tune and tasty fills, and then he also takes the lead on the repeat, but it's still a dance between the two. Perry solos first, melodic and free-flowing, a great tone, and Hart follows, soft and warm to start, but he works up with ascending lines of repeating notes. He gets some pearly double stops and fast flurries into interval ideas as he goes on, ending up with some neat sliding figures before Charette takes over with soft and speedy runs. Hearts back with the melody and assist from Perry and a short outro with the alternating sax notes we heard before. It's a breezy and nice version of this old tune. Track four, back to a Hart original, Act Riot. <laughs> it was kind of an hmm. interesting reversal there. Johns gets a speedy drum intro with cool tom work. It's 12 measures. Then we get some dark syncopated guitar and organ hits going around with more drum fills for two more rounds of the pattern. The melody is made of speedy moving riffs that Perry and Hart take together for two rounds. It makes a kind of interesting altered minor blues. The syncopated organ bass hits give it punch and Perry's off flying on a solo over Charette's thumping bass for an energetic solo with interesting phrasing. Hart gets to show off some speedy chops on this one, and he still comes up with great melodic ideas, even in high gear, and he plays some fun, rapid, repeated pick notes, too. Charette's organ solo lines on this one really percolate with caffeinated excitement, and the three soloists trade halves of choruses with John's drum soloing uh, for a few rounds before they go through the melody a couple more times with a fun, speedy tag ending. It's a really exciting tune. Another old tune, track five, Fred Kutz's For All We Know, 1934. Wow. Perry sits out on this tune. Hart gets a rubato solo guitar intro to this ballad with a dreamy rising line of notes and a final slide and then descending chords. Charette and Johns are in in time with the start of the melody that Hart takes on guitar. Hart's phrasing is great. Dark organ swells below sound really fine. 
Hart continues right into his solo with nice pearly notes, lots of rising line ideas, ending up with some speedy double-time lines. It's all very tasty. Charette has a glimmering tone for this one and varies the dynamics teasingly, building up to more percussive ideas and swells on his solo, and hearts back with the melody, including a line of sweet double stops and a little cadenza with some fun interval ideas before the ending. This is really masterful ballad playing on this track. Mm. Track six is a heart original things. What things, you may ask? Well, if you know all the things you are, the Jerome current standard. Uh, you'll recognize the solo guitar intro that uh, riff that Hart plays, you know, that like that. It sounds like he's using some harmonics for some of the notes too here. And he works off that idea as Johns gets a 6-8 beat traced out in the cymbals and Charette adds chords and a bouncy bass line. Hart's original melody is 18 measures. So that's half of all the things you are uh, with some of the same chord patterns. And they use the same end phrase to the melody to finish it up. Uh, so it's half of all the things you are kind of in there. <laughs> and it's half the title too. Yeah. yeah uh, Perry okay. and Hart take it together in a unison waltzing feel. Hart's solo has snappy rhythmic lines and cool fast triplet figures and a ringing high note climax. Perry's relaxed in his phrasing, getting some nice interaction with John's to make the feel float a bit. And listen to Charette's constantly evolving bass lines underneath everything. Charette's organ solo has skittering lines and builds some simple riff ideas into more complex figures in an interesting way. And they go through the melody again, and then they vamp around on those two chords from the All the Things You Are intro for some flowing interaction between Perry and Hart to a soft ending. Track 7 is a Wayne Shorter tune, Pinocchio. Johns gives a snare roll into this classic hard bop shorter tune. Hart and Perry take the melody together over pumping bass from Charette. It's a great swinging groove here. Hart solos first with adventurous phrases, some biting articulation. And Charette has an exciting organ solo. Perry works a lot of lines down into thick low register notes with a sense of ease. They all trade eights with Johns drums into another run through the melody and a swelling ending. Track 8, another old tune, I'll Get By, written by Fred E. Allert. It was first recorded by Ted Wallace and his orchestra in 1928. Perry sits out on this one as well. It's a happy old pop melody, kind of unique with a 28 measures of two equal halves of 14 measures uh, that start with the same phrase in the melody. Uh, Hart takes the melody and John's is on light brushes. Great bass lines and soft but punchy chords from Charette underneath, who solos first. It's a great little Tom accents from Johns, who switches up to sticks on ride cymbals midway through Charette's melodic solo, and he gets a walking bass below to match that new feel. Hart comes up with great swinging melodic ideas too, and some playful triplet licks, and a fun ending straight back into the melody with a syncopated chord ending with final cute figures. And... The final track, Nine, a Heart Original, Peregrine. It's a fun and funky tune to finish up. Heart's got a cool, dizzy two-measure solo riff to start it out. So it's really different than everything else. Yeah, it's really neat. <laughs> yeah. uh, that gets a funky drum beat, an organ bass, and chords for six measures. Then Perry and Hart have a bluesy melody based around the riff for ten measures with a cool descending ending. They repeat the pattern, but with a different ending the second time. Perry solos first, sassy, and with some high cries into speedy double time. They break up the solos with the riff together once around, and Charette is next. Oh, 
He's got a very cool <laughs> tone picked out for this one. And it's a perfect bluesy and funky nugget of a solo. <laughs> Every organ player should study this as a, just a perfect little bluesy nugget. Hart carries on the bluesy mood, but with some fun harmonic meandering. Johns and Charette bring back the descending line from the melody for backing. Check that out. And then Hart works through some tense chords into a raunchy bluesy climax, and they all end it together uh, with the riff figure. A really masterful jazz album with fabulous playing. Hart's original tunes are engaging. We get a couple well-chosen standards, an interesting reinvention of All the Things You Are, and a Wayne Shorter tune. It's a mix of feels from swing to Latin to funky. Hart's guitar solos are mature and inventive, bursting with creativity. Charette is awesome as always, with great backing, bass lines, amazing solos, and always the perfect selection of organ tones. Perry's got a great sax tone as well, creative solos, and he has kind of an effortless sense of phrasing. And John's is rock steady with inventive fills. His cymbal work sounds perfectly clear throughout the recording, and you got great sound overall on this record. I definitely recommend you check this one out. And I definitely recommend I get this for my CD collection because I like this one a lot. I, this is a pretty long album, and I listened to it all the way through, and it was kind yeah. of sad when it was over, you know? So that just goes to show you. The, the playing on it was just so great. I mm. like the whole feel, overall feel, first of all. It was a fairly quiet album, but very active, too. And I really dug the guitar playing, okay? Very tasteful yeah. throughout. And uh, speaking of, he's a good match for Brian Charette, who I who I find to be very, he's kind of a quieter player, but he's very classy in what he plays. Yeah. And I don't I don't really usually associate the word classy with the Hammond organ, but <laughs> yeah. Brian Charette is he he has that quality, and he has it on this album too. Mm. Anyway, um, yeah, tasteful is a good word to summarize the entire album. The sax and really everyone on this recording plays tastefully with attractive tone. Every solo seems like it has an easily discernible shape to it. So it was kind of, you know, I thought things were just kind of well yeah. sort of planned out, at least in people's heads, like how things were more or less going to go. The tone of the instruments are equally appealing to the tasteful solos. And it just gave me a good feeling uh, throughout. And, of course, we love Brian Charette, so yeah. that's just a bonus. Absolutely. Yeah, I need this. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Yen. I need the Yen to... Uh, <laughs> get yeah. some value there so I can start buying CDs again. <laughs> All right, next we're going to go to an up-and-coming player on the Positone label, saxophonist Willie Morris. His debut as a leader, Conversation Starter, this came out on August 18th as well. Morris is originally from St. Louis, and we've heard him a couple times before on Positone releases. Back in episode 98, P for Pianissimo, we heard Personal Preference. That was uh, a group that uh, Mark Free put together, Something Blue, kind of a Positone label idea right. of his. And then I think we also heard him with uh, the other saxophonist on here, the alto player, Patrick Cornelius. And then we heard uh, episode 107, Funk and Fantasy, uh, trumpeter Josh Lawrence, along with Art Hirahara, and that too. And uh, so we heard Morris's tenor saxophone on that release as well. And as I said on here, his debut recording as a leader on Positone, Patrick Cornelius on alto sax and also alto flute, John Davis on piano, Eddie Meyerson, a female bassist, 
who I think she's American, but she was raised in Israel, and E.J. Strickland on drums and percussion. And as usual, the two-man operation of Positone, Mark Free, producer, and Nico Tool engineer. And I know that um, from reading interviews with Mark Free, he's, you know, has a certain criteria for artists that he selects for the label. So I think he must think that Morris has a lot of potential. And I think this recording shows some really interesting uh, ideas and great playing overall. So we'll start out with a Morris original for track one, Tina's Dream. It's got a dreamy rubato opening of Morris's sax lines over piano ripples, bowed bass, and cymbal washes. The melody is a short six-measure phrase that Morris plays once over just Myerson's bass, and then everyone joins in for a repeat, with Cornelius doubling the sax lines. Morris is off on a modal, kind of minor solo exploration then. Myerson really digs in on the bass with Davis's percussive chords as he churns out angsty, kind of Coltrane-esque lines, uh, reaching a final peaceful resolution. Cornelius follows, working higher explorations with relaxed phrasing, but getting some harmonic tension as well. And Davis gets a cool percussive piano solo with some snappy two-handed lines. They all go around the melody once again to finish this one up. Track two is also a Morris original, St. Upton Hinn which is an anagram for Hunts Point in the South Bronx. You can just reorder those letters there. It's a waltzing meter and hypnotic bass that underlies sporadic phrases of softly flowing sax from Morris, joined here by Cornelius on alto flute. In between the phrases, Davis rings out piano chords and next adds some improv fills. The section goes on for about 39 measures. More solos first, building ideas out of shorter phrases and working into longer flowing lines. Davis has a piano solo with a mix of smooth lines and punctuated chords. The Saxon flute come in over him with more flowing lines with a little gap for the trio just to play before the final phrase. Track three is another Morris original, Cries. Soft skittering and a cymbal roll bring it in. There's an eight-measure intro of funky piano ideas and snappy bass groove in a six-beat feel. So interestingly, the first three tunes are six, eight, kind of three, four, and now another kind of six-beat here. Hmm. The 19-measure melody has the saxes working together on short phrases in unison and then splitting off into harmony at the end of phrases then breaking into independent cries at the end of the melody. Davis gets a rhythmic piano solo with some interesting harmonic explorations, and Morris falls with an intense but smooth solo over the hypnotically alternating modes underneath. Cornelius joins him on another run through the melody lines, and they continue on with extended improvisations weaving lines together. Things get soft with just the rhythm section to close it up with a final cymbal roll. And we can feel by now that Morris seems to be rooted in a real kind of spiritual, modal jazz concept. Track four, It Is Well With My Soul. And this is the first of two hymns we're going to hear tonight's uh, recordings. This is an 1873 hymn by Horatio Spafford, and who was an American lawyer and a Presbyterian church elder. This one starts out with flowing ripples of piano over bowed bass for an intro. Morris plays the melody slowly and tenderly, while Davis decorates it with soft piano chords, and Strickland decorates with soft brushings. Davis gets a solo with some close harmonic intervals into trickling lines, and Morris has a thoughtful solo with gentle phrasing as well, to a soft finish over more of those piano ripples. Track 5. 
the strength of those who bear the burden. So Morris original, and you may recognize that line from Nehemiah 4.10. This starts out with a drum intro from Strickland with some cool tom beats. It feels in four for eight measures, but then things start to feel more in free time as this one moves along. The melody has angular unison sax lines that end in harmonies over syncopated rhythm section figures and drum fills that continue between the separated phrases. More solos first and the beat opens into a free flow, but with lots of rhythmic interaction. Davis gets a little Cubanesque kind of idea with some figures and keeps the chords punchy. Cornelius follows on alto with lots of exploration in his lines, and Meyerson works into a walking bass, and Strickland matches with ride cymbals to get things into a swing on the way. Davis has an interesting solo working with a little Latin figure from before into interesting harmonic explorations as well. And he stretches the time with chord figures into the syncopation we heard in the beginning as Strickland fills the gaps nicely and the saxes are back with the melody phrases to finish it. It's very free and fun. Track six, a Morris original, Keep Talking. This one starts out with a single repeated bass note from Meyerson that gets some syncopated skips in the pattern. Strickland adds busy drums and Davis waves of a minor mode as Morris comes in with soft sax lines into more urgent pleading phrases. That goes on for a minute and then Morris gets into different melodic phrases, follow the evolution of Meyerson's bass into different types of figures and then into fast walking as Morris's improvisations develop. Davis punctuates with chords as Morris goes on freely exploring and has his own intense solo. There's a good rhythmic interaction with Strickland matching smashes on a lot of hard-hitting piano chords. The piano solo and drum beat unwind into Meyerson's bass, which is left alone to do some rubato exploration for a while until re-establishing the throbbing one-note idea and a return to the beginning idea with sax lines. It ends up with rippling piano from Davis over the unwinding of the bass with some harmonics. Track seven, Morris's original introspective. It's a ballad with a pretty solo piano opening from Davis that ends way up high. The melody is made of very soft flowing, mostly half note sax lines that unfolds over 26 measures. Davis has contrasting moving fills and chords underneath. He gets a piano solo of ringing notes and chords with some interesting rhythmic figures too. The saxes are back with more melody and some soft final lines from Morris as the piano trickles out at the end. Track eight, a Joe Henderson tune. This is from his 1964 Inner Urge album, Isotope. Davis gives it a unique little four measure piano intro here. It's a hard boppy kind of altered 12 bar blues melody taken by both saxes and they go around it twice. Cornelius solos first with a mix of bluesy ideas and harmonic weaving and Morris swings it hard with some more bluesy licks and good tension spots in his lines. Davis works up to a punchy piano solo that ends up with some cool descending lines. And Meyerson gets a couple rounds on bass too, before they wrap it up with a couple more times around the tune. Track nine, a Morris original, Azar. This one has some changing meters in it. It's interesting. The melody starts with a dual sax figure that feels like it's in four beats for two measures. Then it feels like it switches to three beats for a measure of drums and another sax line pickup into a kind of Spanish tinged section with sax riffs over these alternating chords. And they also alternate between four and three beat measures. 
then it returns to the starting pattern and it ends with just one measure of where that previous alternating set of chords began. Davis picks up from there with a piano solo with some cool two-hand synced up ideas. And Strickland is beating things furiously on the drums underneath here. Mm -hmm. uh, Morris has a solo of intense lines that drive forward and get angsty. And Strickland gets busy on a long drum solo, working it around the kit and bringing it down quietly before working up a driving beat to bring the saxes back on the alternating chord riff and some final improvisations over the held out ending. And the final track, Morris's original and the title track, Conversation Starter. <laughs> this is a little bit uh, surprising one here. Uh, Meyerson gets it started with the solo bass for the first half of the tune, uh, working some rhythmic licks and harmonics into softer lines and then getting into a steady walking line. Strickland adds a beat working around the snare and Davis and the horns enter with sort of free lines that seem to be like different voices having a conversation, mm. although we may not know what language they're speaking in. Uh, they finish their chat, and Myerson keeps walking on with the bass and some light drums from Strickland to a quiet ending. And that wraps it up. It's an adventurous debut recording. Morse's style seems to be influenced a lot by Joe Henderson, probably Coltrane, and maybe a little spiritual Pharaoh Sanders as well. Uh, his compositions are unique, and have a sparse quality to them. He likes things on the freer side, and he has a lot of creative ideas in his solos when he's getting into that flow. Cornelius seems to be a good match for him in style. They work well together, as they have on previous recordings. And Davis really impresses with unique piano solos. They kind of uh, really never know what's going to come next in his ideas. And Myerson and Strickland can groove or hang loose and keep things together depending on the situation. Uh, I'll be keeping an ear out for what Morris does next. Yeah, um, adventurous was a really good word to use for this. Um, mm. This is, and It's um, certainly um, in, invigorating. What's, and uh, I don't know what the word I want to say here is. But anyway, there's some pretty complex music on this album. <laughs> I, I felt like if you really wanted to follow a lot of the rhythms, there's a lot of counting that had to be done on some of these tracks. Complex music makes for you know complex listening, and um, I thought this record engaged the intellect. I was certainly, and I I like music that does that. You know, as long as it's not only doing that, right. okay. And uh, so I felt like I had to focus and follow on this one. I particularly enjoyed the pianist on this album. He had this instrument that had an older, sort of more worn-in sound, hmm. and I thought it served his playing well. Like it wasn't like it's one of these bright kind of pianos with a long sustain it kind of the sustain was kind of short on it actually but his his playing was well served by that mm. i like the splashy drums and i'm going to use that word again on the next recording <laughs> some complicated accents in just about every track and i'd also like the way he'd pick up the rhythm of the soloist lines and then play that rhythm it's pretty uh he really kind of comes in and sort of doesn't interrupt but really will let's say speak loudly when mm. it's his turn to uh to say something Anyway, the bass had some happening solos in this record, too. Yeah. So the whole thing really kept me engaged. It was a good listen. It was intellectual. It was kind of tiring, too. <laughs> Just sort of like <laughs> that uh, Shostakovich album, like mm. you said. You know, I was kind of a bit exhausted after I heard this. It kind of felt like, like that album, like a refreshing workout, you know? I kind of right. liked it a lot. It was good. There's a lot to listen to. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All right, and our final album well, this one's uh, really exciting and we yeah i thought this was exciting some too. some of the first people to get to hear this because it's not going to come out until september 8th 
got a promotional early release by the great trumpeter, Terrell Stafford. This is his new recording, Between Two Worlds. It's on Lecoq Records. And a very special thanks to Roberta Lawrence from DL Media Thank you, uh, for Roberta. giving us an advanced copy of this to listen to. So normally I would have held off probably for another week, but uh, since we've got our guest episode with the uh, same difference next week, uh, I didn't want to have it come out after the date. So mm-hmm. you got to wait a little while, but it's going to be well worth yeah. the wait because this is a really great recording. Now, if you don't know Terrell Stafford, he first started playing trumpet at age 13, initially studying classical music. He got a music education degree at the University of Maryland, but he had the fortune to meet Wynton Marsalis, who suggested he also study with Dr. William Fielder at Rutgers University. That had a big impression on his musical direction. He had an association with Bobby Watson's group, Horizon, where he worked with Victor Lewis. We have a tune from on this recording as well. He's a member of McCoy Tyner's Latin All-Star Band, and he's worked with lots of other great jazz musicians, Benny Golson Sextet, Kenny Barron as well, Frank West, Jimmy Heath, Quintet and Big Band, John Faddis, Cedar Walton, the list goes on and on. He's performed on over 130 albums. Wow. And I think he's got around 10 under his own name as a leader, and that all started with Time to Let Go, Candid label back in 1995. That's his debut as a leader. He's also performed in the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, and he teaches Jazz at Lincoln Center and Juilliard. And he's been the managing and artistic director of the Jazz Orchestra of Philadelphia and chair of instrumental studies and director of jazz studies at Temple University. So it's quite a resume as a player and a leader and educator as well. So this recording between two worlds seems to have uh, several different ways to think about it. Coming out of the COVID time, there's the normal world and the COVID world, oh, uh, which, uh, you know, musicians wearing masks and performing to an empty room while they're on some live stream somewhere. Oh, uh, also, uh, the notes mention his uh, domestic versus professional life so he's uh, got his family several of the tunes are dedicated to family members on here also other aspects of his career musician and educator teacher administrator and his background both classical music and jazz music so sort of uh, different worlds interacting i guess we all think about life in that way sometimes as mm-hmm. well so that's sort of the concept for the title and the rest of the musicians on here, well, we've got Terrell Stafford on trumpet and flugelhorn, Tim Warfield on tenor and soprano sax. Always good to hear his sax on an album. Bruce Barth, who is really phenomenal on here on piano. David Wong on bass. Jonathan Blake on drums, who's also got his own new release out, Passage. Check that out as well. I've had a couple of listens of that. And Alex Acuna on percussion. And we should mention, this was recorded at Studio A, Las Vegas, and at Capitol Studios, Los Angeles, produced by Piero J. Pata and Andy James, the co-founders of this Lecoq Records label. All right, track one is a title track, Between Two Worlds. It's uh, composed and arranged by drummer Victor Lewis. And this comes from, I think, the first recording, 1992, Lewis's Know It Today, Know It Tomorrow. It's a speedy, hard bop, 28-measure melody, and Stafford comes right in over drums and bass. The first 16 measures has a kind of 
percolating beat with poppy snare and then it takes off swinging over walking bass for eight measures with the final four measures returning to the first phrase and feel of the melody. Warfield sax and Barthes piano join in for another round of the melody. Stafford is off on the first solo with bubbly boppy melodic lines. His cool chromatic rising idea that builds tension, some bluesy licks, and then a series of tense descending figures into a full power climax. He recorded an album Brotherly Love, celebrating uh, the music of Lee Morgan, and that brash, good-natured bravura influence from Morgan's fearless approach shows in his playing. We don't hear that a lot in uh, jazz these days. Uh, There's a lot of players that are very careful, but you get that real sense of uh, adventure in his playing. Uh, And a great shining bright tone on this trumpet that cuts through. Warfield falls with a tenor solo, swinging hard, with shorter phrases of ideas building into longer connected ideas. And Blake is really driving things hard with thunderous fills that at the end of Warfield's solo carry right over into Barth's piano solo there. It's really exuberant. Uh, Barth really charged up here too. He plays a lot of really cool rhythmic figures climbing higher and higher into percussive two-hand chord ideas rounded out with smooth, high-running lines. And Blake gets a go-around on the drums, too, working up a frenzy of toms, snare, and cymbals. And they finish it off with one more run through the melody uh, with both horns uh, this time. Uh, It's an exciting start to the recording. Well, here's our other hymn that I alluded to before. Great is Thy Faithfulness, uh, Thomas Chisholm William Runyon, and uh, arranged by Terrell Stafford here. It's uh, written as a tender farewell to all those lost in the past few years of difficult times. So this is a hymn based on Lamentations 323. And so Chisholm wrote the poem in 1923. He sent it to Runyon to write the music to it. So I think anyone who's been in a uh, Protestant church will have sung this song or at least heard it. But you haven't heard it like this. Yeah, <laughs> they get it started sure. with an eight-measure Latin percussion samba groove from Acuna. And then there's another eight measures of a throbbing ostinato Latin minor groove, adding bass and piano. And then Stafford comes in with the melody, which is legato and flowing, making an interesting contrast to this exciting groove that's going on. Now, this originally, the hymn is in 3-4 time. So this stretch to a four-beat Latin groove gives it an interesting kind of phrasing as well. Warfield joins in with harmony from the Thou Changest Not lyric, if you know the tune, in that strain. It sounds really joyful over this rhythm. They end the melody with the minor vamp from the intro, where Stafford starts his solo and then goes back into the major melody, which is a really nice change-up. It's a happy-sounding solo with fun interval ideas and good articulation. Warfield follows with a solo of building ideas and anticipation building pauses. And Barth has smooth reaching lines and a big chord climax, the final descending trail in his solo. Another run through the smooth melody into a final Latin vamp and percussion from Acuna to a fade out. It's a very cool reimagination of this well-known hymn. Track three, Mia Mia, Stafford's original tune dedicated to his six-year-old daughter. 
And the Latin grooves continue in this one. Blake beats it in with three tom hits, and there's a 16-measure intro of rhythm section with some snappy bass from Wong, Acuna's percussion, and percussive chords from Barth. Then there's a repeating eight-measure section of subdued, simple, melodic horn figures. A percussion and drum break turns up the excitement into some Latin percussive piano from Barth into another section of more forceful horn lines. Warfield on soprano here, splitting off into harmony on the repeat, and then launching into his own solo. It's slinky and teasing with held notes, repeated and modulated ideas into some final repeated figures. Another drum and percussion break transitions to Stafford's solo. It's an exciting one with a great Latin feel to it, lots of high notes, and fun false figuring licks. Barth follows with a really hammering solo on some tense harmonies into some Cuban rhythm chords. I've never heard him play in a Latin style before, although I know mm. his his recordings, but he sounds really great. Percussion time is next with exchanges of ideas between Acuna and Blake. And bass and piano come back for a round to bring the horns in on that second set of lines we heard earlier, and that wraps it up. Another really exciting tune. Track four, Two Hearts as One. And this is Stafford's composition, a ballad for his wife. And he's got the Harmon mute in for this one. It starts out rubato with just his trumpet over Barth's chords and piano figures. It's a longing minor melody with a reaching quality of lines that keep rising. Very pretty. It's a 16-measure construction, and bass and drums come in for another time through, taking it very slowly with tom and cymbal accents from Blake. Wong is up first for a bowed bass solo, sounding melodic and a bit cello-like in the higher range of the instrument. Stafford follows with a lyrical solo, getting the most out of the mute ambiance. I like his mix of articulation, and there's one very Miles Davis-like rising line that you'll probably recognize in there. Uh, Barth has a lovely sparse solo showing off a soft touch on pretty high and lightly ringing notes. They take it once more through the melody, finishing up over some low-bowed bass from Wong. Track five, a Horace Silver tune, Room 608. This is from Horace Silver in the Jazz Messengers, 1955. They give this one an interesting twist, changing it from 4-4 to 7-4, and it takes on a kind of calypso feel in the A sections of the melody and then more driving swing in the B sections. The new meter makes the boppy horn melody lines even more fun with accents, if you know the original tune. Stafford solos first, with happy melodic lines and bluesy licks, with clear articulation, really getting some Lee Morgan impressions here again. A nice final growl on the end of the solo, too. Warfield gets a tenor solo after that, getting some fun rhythmic licks, and then Barth follows with a really inventive solo with swinging lines, two-handed figures, and some cool bluesy licks as well. The horns get some new fun figures to trade with Blake's drum soloing that gets really raucous into another run of the melody. And they ended up with the eight-measure intro section, another cool reinvention of a tune. Track six is Billy Strayhorn's Blood Count, arranged by Bruce Barth. This is from Ellington's album, 1967, and his mother called him Bill, dedicated to Billy Strayhorn. And this was his final completed composition before his death in 1967. It's a feature for Wong's bass, who gets the melody and really makes it sing. The horns come in on the B section of the melody, and Stafford's got the cup mute in, which gets a really old-timey Ellington-esque atmosphere to that section. The horns return on near the end of the melody for some more soft backing. And then Wong continues for a short solo on one A section, and then Barth takes over 
with some high solo trickles for a turn, and Stafford gets a solo uh, with cup mute on the B section and final A section of the melody, before getting soft, turning it back over to Wong, who works into a bass cadenza to a final chord from everyone to end it. It's an interesting and sensitive arrangement and nice treatment. Track seven is a Bruce Barth tune, Manaus at Dusk. So I guess Manaus is the capital of the Brazilian state of Amazonas. And it's got a Brazilian feel, fittingly, lots of Latin percussion. The rhythm section gives it an eight measure intro and it's very atmospheric with ghostly flowing horn lines. And I'm really not sure about the structure of this tune at all. Uh, the first eight measure horn line phrase repeats. Then there's another different section of the same length. The chords sound quite similar. The horn lines are different. Then there's a six measure piano section and then the second horn section again, then 12 measures of piano and a final eight measure horn section. What is that? I have no idea. Anyway, Stafford's up for a solo next. Maybe it's flugelhorn here. Nice snappy rhythmic licks. Warfield follows on soprano sax, keeping the snappy idea with some interesting intervals in his lines. And Barth has a lot of ideas in his solo focusing on the high register. Then he works into a section of repeated descending piano lines for Acuna to get some percussion playing in. The beat dissolves into rubato ghostly horn lines, like from before, with Blake and Acuna filling with percussive sounds. Things get back into tempo for the second section of horn lines, and then there's some eight measure solo exchanges, and it wraps up with some final horn lines together. Track eight, McCoy Tyner's You Taught My Heart to Sing, I think the first recording of this is from 1987's Live at the Musicians Exchange Cafe. Barth gets a tasty solo piano opening, working it into tempo. And Stafford takes the ballad melody on flugelhorn over warm, ringing bass from Wong. Well, being lyrical, he gives it a nice snappiness in phrasing with ringing high notes. Barth has a great solo of ideas that have delicate flowing lines of high notes into punchy chords. And then Stafford's back for an improvised solo of really snapping figures into inventive tumbling lined cadenza with some final interval ideas over bowed bass. And we're going to end it with another original. The notes say that uh, Stafford's mother was getting impatient uh, for her son to write a tune in her honor. And this is Ruth's Bluths, but it's really a kind of, uh, well, a kind of raucous good old-time blues feel tune. Maybe that's what she liked. Could be, yeah. <laughs> well, Wong starts it out with a bluesy bass and cool double stops and bends before uh, working into a loping, walking bass line. The rest of the rhythm section is in, and Barth gets to work up a chorus of bluesy piano. The horns come in with the sassy, smeary, old-time bluesy riff melody. <laughs> a nice half-valve work on the trumpet, and Warfield gets a great tone on the harmony uh, that comes in the second time around. Uh, and he solos first, really tantalizing, restrained blues licks. There's great space, some really dirty, gruff-toned cries. It's beauty and simplicity. This is a great bluesy sax solo. And Stafford has a neat, sassy solo, working it up slowly. He builds up to smears, going way up high with nasty growls and shakes. It's another fine blues solo. And Barth gets his chance too building into new choruses of pounding bluesy chords with huge tremolos. 
once more around the melody to a slowdown and some final all-out bluesy trumpet with a horse-like whinnying shake and a <laughs> final note together with the sax. And that wraps it up. So this is a really exciting release. I feel sorry yeah. you have to wait until September 8th to hear yeah, I'm this. I'm sorry I have to wait till September 8th to get a CD of this. <laughs> Stafford's in top form with fabulous trumpet playing. The tune selection has great variety, nice originals dedicated to his family members, covers of classic jazz musician compositions, and a contribution from Barth. Everything is fresh with a samba hymn reimagination, Horace Silver's tune in a new meter, swinging Latin grooves, and dirty blues. Great solos all around from Stafford and Warfield. I was really impressed with Barth's piano playing. He sounds particularly inspired on this recording. Right. Wong gets a nice bass feature as well, and Blake drives everything with hard-hitting drums. Acuna's percussion gives that extra edge on the Latin numbers. Highly recommended. Have a listen right away when it comes out. Yeah, I like this a lot too. <laughs> One of the things I wrote about the drums on this album is he's 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 just splashing around all through, <laughs> through the whole album, like 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 a kid in a pool while everybody yeah. else is like, <laughs> And and then you feel like he'll come in, like he'll kind of like like you said, he'll interrupt and he'll sort of like you know sort of play mm. while between solos and stuff. So it kind of it kind of felt like you know getting splashing on the on the other people too. I really liked his yeah. energy, and I think that uh, had a lot to do with the energy of everybody else. Although I don't know, you know, it's hard to say who's really providing it, but you could hear it from him. Right. There's a lot of energy on the album. And a lot of ideas from the solos as well. And I, I singled out Bruce Barth too, of course. Mm. Uh, I like him in general though. So, But here, yeah, I thought he really kind of stepped out. He's got a rich tone and is recorded clearly and up front. But I suspect that's just his sound. I think he just can mm. sort of project, you know what I mean? I think he's got something in his sound as well as just his, what he plays. The trumpet plays out like uh, 1960s kind of... Right. way in fact the energy reminds me of the 1960s like that you said it was fresh and i think of that era as you know having a lot of really fresh jazz so it kind of reminded me a bit like that i personally liked the uh wilder more energetic tracks on the album so the first three were my favorite ones but yeah i really liked all of this yeah really cool especially <laughs> that samba hymn combination i thought was neat that's <laughs> yeah, really interesting the ballad for his wife is really beautiful too kind of a haunting minor melody anyway yeah this is some adventurous trumpet playing and i really like that bright cutting sound that he has and uh, sort of fearless approach take no prisoners trumpet solos uh, i really like that uh, style of playing i do too and uh, so he's got the chops and ideas to do that and uh, this comes off really well. Yeah, great jazz album. Yeah. yeah. All right. A lot of good music here to listen to. we got a lot more lined up uh, in the jazz category, too, for the rest of the summer. And the classical category. No worries there. There's a lot of stuff out in the next two weeks. But next week's already sealed up with our three recordings. We've got some Ravel. We've got uh, interesting recording of uh, standards with uh, unlikely participant. <laughs> in the jazz trio and we've got some uh, vocals with uh, some interesting interpretations so we'll get uh, the same difference guys in for a little standard summit and see what happens see what they've got to say about all this uh, music that we've been listening to so as always the playlist for those recordings will be up a few hours after this goes up and we're going to record that in a couple of days and that'll come out as our regular episode next week right so you can check deezer or facebook if you want to see those recordings ahead of time here 
uh, we'll add the Terrell Stafford recording once it's released. I'll come back and put it to the playlist in case someone's listening to this episode at a later date. And we'll put up the Spotify and Apple links too. So thanks as always to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And remember, the same difference guys will be here with us on our next episode if everything goes well. But you can check out their podcast in the meantime. There'll be a link to it in the description. And at the end of this episode, there'll be a little promo from them. So stick on and listen to what they're all about. I'm tired and uh, <laughs> and excited, as I always am at the end of these uh, podcasts. Yeah. So there you go. All right. So we'll wrap it up here. As always, thanks for listening and uh, keep on listening. Check out those playlists and we'll see you again for a special guest episode next time for episode 130. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.